listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since One and all to a very special, gentle party, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema episode. I don't know what number episode this is. Anybody can help me there? Maybe 170? Uh, hold up, hold up, hold up. It is 167. It's 167. Uh, blew my load there. Uh, this is <laughs> The Loaf stepping in for the normal gentleman. With me, Cinemasticus Justin. Yo! And T.L. Bug himself, Mr. Zach. Hello. So, yeah, Will and Sammy couldn't get their schedules vibed this week, so uh, we are stepping in, as true gentlemen do, and um, we are reviewing one movie this week, and I believe, I I assume it's going to happen at the second half of the show. Will has a little special thing he's going to add for us later on. Um, so we are providing a review this week. Uh, we, d- we jumped on Facebook and kind of had a quick little powwow session and found something on Instant that looked uh, interesting. I think it was at TIFF a couple years ago. It is a Congolese film from 2010 called Viva Riva, a nice uh, gangster film about uh, stealing, uh, stealing gas and doing horrific things to people. So that'll be a fun review. <laughs> Um, as the gentlemen do, and as I do on my show, Silver and Gold, we will talk about now what we've been watching recently. We won't make it too long because there are three of us, and who knows how long it's been since uh, we last had this conversation with anybody. So we'll just uh, we'll we'll cover the highlights. So I'll let one of you guys go first. All right, I'll jump in first. And uh, the first uh, one I'm going to bring up is going to be a cheap promotion of my site, The Freaking Awesome Network. It's my uh, latest movie, Nalia, and that is Bucky Larson, Born to be a Star. And dear Lord, was this terrible. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. I think there was one legitimate laugh, and the rest of this was just this is, th- these were the jokes that you get. He has buck teeth, he has a small penis, his, he has a lot of pubic hair, so he looks like he has a vagina. It's those three jokes. Over and over and over again for an hour and a half. Yes. And none of it is funny. That's Schindler's, Schindler's List was funnier than this movie. Oh, that's, that's really disappointing because Nick Schwartzland is usually pretty funny. Yeah. Stand-up-wise, maybe, but uh, it's, it's, I, I just kind of had this feeling that maybe like Adam Sandler wanted to burn some money and Nick Schwartzland was bored, so they just did this. Because it just does not feel like there's any effort in this. And it does have a few, you know, nice surprises. You get Christina Ritchie's in there. She definitely doesn't want to seem to be there. You've got Don Johnson as the director. And you have uh, Stephen Dorff as the uh, porn star named Dick Shadow. Because he has a bit, dick so big, everything, nothing grows in its shadow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I like that. Chris, Christina Ricci, hot or not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say hot. Oh, hot, yeah, hot. So the, the the forehead or the the five head as some people would like to say is a little little off putting for me. But after um seeing 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 her uh take it off in Black Snake Moan, I became more of a fan again. 
And one in one cameo in this film that made me bust bust up laughing because he's always my punching bag, and it's only fitting that to be in a movie like this is K- Paulie Shore has a cameo. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like it's kind of like they know me. All right. Well, other than that, I actually got a, a good amount in for urine cramming. I'll just go over a few. Uh, I went and seen Hugo in the theater, and I loved it. Yes. Seen it in 3D. Uh, this is obviously Martin Scorsese's new film, and I was I was skeptical going in, you know, when it first came out, because I was thinking, could this be, you know, Scorsese's first, you know, maybe bad film, or at least not good. I mean, I'm not used to him doing 3D films, family films. It just it didn't seem appealing to me. But once I started hearing the buzz, I got in, you know, intrigued, and I'm glad that my theater, local theater brought it back for another week or yeah. two weeks if I could catch it. Because I mean, this is just not only it's a lot of fun, but I, you mentioned it, it, it's a tremendous love letter to film, and it kind of just kind of encapsulates why I guess we kind of get wrapped up in the magic of it all, especially when you see, uh, you know, so many uh, how they do the films back uh, when he, you know, back in the early 1920s, and they just churn out so many and ben kingsley finally gets a good role again it, it, i just love this film i think uh the only thing i, I mean i like sasha baron cohen in it but i kind of thought they could have toned down a bit on the cheeky humor with him because it yeah, didn't seem to yeah. gel well with house and i don't know it just kind of felt like that kind of felt forced like especially near the ending but other than that i mean i really really enjoyed this one i liked all of his i liked all his smiles yeah i did <laughs> Yeah, he, like I said, he, he's good in the role. I love this. Yeah, yeah. But alrighty, next up was uh, Moneyball, the Brad Pitt movie on the uh, Oakland Athletics, and how you know their their quest to go to you know the World Series and win on trying to pick up wins instead of trying to get the best players they can. And since they have such a small budget, they're not like the Yankees or anybody; they can't spend a lot of money. He hires Jonah Hill. Who you know is a financial wizard almost and crunches numbers and tries to figure out people who you know would get overlooked to get picked, but they can get hits, they can get runs, they can get themselves on base, and it's you know an idea. It's called Moneyball, and it's an idea that they pretty much laughed at, and for a while it takes a while for him to even get there, but eventually gets them. And this isn't really a spoiler, or considering this is based on true story, but they end up breaking the record for most consecutive wins eventually. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's really good. The only problem is I don't think it quite transitions well to screen at times, and it does go on a bit too long. But it is really interesting to see, and I always kind of like watching movies where they kind of deal with the politics of, you know, behind the scenes of sports or anything, and this mm-hmm. one's uh, interesting with it, so it might pop up on my top 30 list, but if it does, it'll probably be in the uh, tail end of it. Gotcha. I watched, uh, last night I watched uh, Melancholia, and I will say this, I can see where people will love this film, and I can also see where people won't like it. I'm somewhat in the middle, but I just kind of don't like it. It's not that I don't like what I was trying to do. It just kind of didn't click with me. I can see that. Uh, it's uh, it's it's not for everybody. It's pretty. It, it gets pretty slow. Um, yeah, and it links a lot. And the fact that you're covering the end of the world through the eyes of like four people is a little. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Some <laughs> that's going to turn some people off too. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, I'm sorry, Zom just sent me a message. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I got distracted. I apologize. Uh, I mean, I, I like I, I would have related, I guess, maybe to how you know the Tree of Life is also only going to be for certain people, like how we I loved it. But I know mm-hmm. right now on the Giants Facebook page, you know, people some of them aren't liking it. And like I said, I definitely like the performances of this, and I definitely like the approach. I just couldn't completely get behind it. Uh, but I still definitely I, I do recommend at least people checking it out because I, I kind of want to see how people react to it because it's kind of hard to recommend unless you ultimately know somebody's gonna love it or not 
So, and in this community, I think it's a fair game. Uh, another one I watched, this one's up on Netflix Instant last night, is called Weekend. Uh, this one I loved, and you can guarantee it'll be my top three list. It's about, um, it's, uh, it's takes place in uh, the United Kingdom, and it's two gay men, they have a one-night stand together, but they try, over the span of a few days, to kind of, like, try to make it more meaningful. And what I like about this is, though, yeah, it kind of, you know, brings up some of the topics, especially because, you know, United Kingdom's not as straightforward as, you know, past forward as are now with them. It deals with, you know, some of the problems gays have, but at the end of the day, it doesn't, like, for it doesn't like make them caricatures. It just treats it like it would treat a regular love story between a man and a woman. It just so happens to be two guys. Right, right. And that I love about it. And it, it's definitely, I guess, maybe slow moving for some people, or maybe just not too much happening. It's, you know, dialogue heavy film. But I thought the two leads had tremendous chemistry, and I, I just loved it. I thought they did a tremendous job with it. Cool. So, uh, is there anything else? Da, 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 da. I watched. Uh, Kill List, which I enjoyed. This is the um, film about a hitman who um, is taking another job. His last one went awry, so he kind of went stayed low, but now he needs the money again. You know, he's having problems with his wife. He's, he's very short-tempered, uh, and it's basically him and his partner uh, doing this assignment, but him not being able to maybe completely stay stri- uh, straight, you know, laced with it. Yeah, it's yeah. good. I really like it. I'm not sure if it'll hit my top 30 because there's – I thought it took a little while to pick up for me, but it, it's definitely good, and I recommend checking it out. Is and it a, another one. Is it an American a, movie? Uh, no, United Kingdom. Okay. So, we got a lot of those in the past few weeks. And I'll just mention one more that also probably won't be on my list, but that was Meek's Cutoff. Another one I can definitely see where it will be put on people's list, and I think I enjoy this a bit more than I did Melancholia, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it's this one is extremely slow-moving. It's just... A bunch, you know, a family in the old west. They're just kind of going from, you know, backtracking with a, uh, with you know, their traveler Meek, and they're kind of concerned of whether or not he knows what he's doing. And Paul Dano's in this is really good. You know, a lot of unknowns. It, it, this is more of a film that I think is perfect for like maybe film schools because it is, it has tremendous cinematography, and I think that would be great kind of a lesson plan to show like, all right, this is you know, you know, different camera angles, how you shoot cinematography, how you shoot scenery. As a film, I mean, it's still good. It just, uh, I think, I, I don't, I couldn't completely get into it, but I still did rather enjoy it. It has a it has such a seventies name. Maybe even like, <laughs> yeah, maybe even maybe like pre seventies. It has a definitely old old movie name. So cool. And, well, uh, 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 Zach, what have you been up to lately? Um, I, I don't have many things I've been watching lately because uh, I just well, wrapped up watching. Did I cut uh, you off, Justin? No, no, no. You're okay. fine. Okay, sorry. I was just about to say I'm done. That's all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just finished up watching the last season of Dexter, so I've been kind of into that lately. Um, but uh, I have watched a few things. Um, I watched uh, By the Sword with uh, F. Murray Abraham and Eric Roberts. It's a very exciting uh, fencing movie. Um, <laughs> nice. If like you could imagine, it sounds like thing. something we would review. <laughs> I know, that's what I was just thinking, a fencing double feature. Yeah, it, it was actually uh, pretty fun. Of course, it leads up to an actual real swords battle at the end. Uh, but, you know, Eric Roberts, always worth the price of admission anywhere uh, yeah. in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, um, this month on Lightning Bugs Lair, I'm doing a National Blood Donation Month because it is National Blood Donation Month. And uh, so all the titles have to do with blood. So the last couple things I've watched were uh, I saw Blood of Dracula's Castle, which was uh, an Al Adamson uh, movie from, I believe, the mid-60s. Cool. It was uh, pretty fun. Uh, John Carradine 
showing up as uh as the butler in that who uh uh dracula's moved into the new age and now he just has john carradine take blood out and they drink bloody marys all the time <laughs> i think i might have that in my collection one of the uh, like multi-pack uh dvds they sell yeah it's on it's on the mill creek a lot of the mill yeah. creek stuff so yeah i'm sure, yeah, sure you probably I, do i probably have it on one of the two because i have two of their big 50 movie box sets and i'm sure i've seen it in one of those yeah it's it's actually pretty fun uh it's definitely tongue-in-cheek and doesn't take itself very seriously and, and uh and pretty pretty campy and fun uh the other one i've watched recently is is of course a classic of all time uh i went back and probably for the first time since it came out i watched blood sport Yes. Oh, yes. And uh, I, it was unbelievably awesome. Still, I bought a, I bought a double disc of that. It was that and uh, Bloodsport and Time Cop together on one pack. Oh, that's quality. Yeah. I think nice. I got, that might have been a Big Lots purchase. It was only like five bucks wherever it was. So. Yeah, I think I just seen that at uh, a Big Lots the other day. Now I think about it because I was in there the other week and it was because they had like a bunch of like fade damn. Double, right, triple, right, right. You know, they had a quadruple feature they were trying to get rid of, <laughs> which I would have picked up because I had good films on. I just already owned the film, so there's no reason for me to pick it up. Uh, okay, but, so was that it for you? Or yeah, that's that's all I've really been watching lately. Yeah, Dexter will eat up the time. My, my wife still watches it. I, I kind of lost interest in Dexter after um, I don't know. There's a, it seems like with that show, it's every other season that's good for me. Um, like right. I really like the first yeah. season, and then the second season, I'm like, "Fuck this!" With that British chick, she sucked. And then the third season was <laughs> that was Jimmy Smith's, I think. Yeah, 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 and that one was pretty good. But I don't know the I I didn't even watch this past season because the season before, like the the ending in particular, just kind of got on my nerves, and I'm just like, "Eh, I'm not yeah. really wanting to donate another 13 hours to this show." So. And what, what really drew me onto this one was that the this you know they always kind of do the serial killer of the year, which kind of was getting on my nerves. But uh, this time it was uh, Edward James Holmos and uh, Colin Hanks. Yeah, Colin Hanks. I saw. I, I've seen. I've walked in. I've walked past when I saw it. I was like, "That's Tom Hanks' son." And my wife didn't know who he was. So yeah, and they were both so super good. That's and cool. I got to make tons of Tom Hanks jokes. <laughs> um, uh, and stand and deliver jokes, which uh, my wife was very irritated about. <laughs> That's a double winner, I think. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I uh, I'm kind of like loaf. I did watch the first season of Dexter, and pretty much most of the second season, and kind of bailed out on it. I just always have a terrible time of actually sticking with shows. Yeah. Since I'm more of a yeah. movie guy, and there are some shows I actually want to check into. It's just like I was saying on the. Uh, Last week's podcast with that on humanity, uh, like Breaking Bad, it's on Netflix. Dude. I know, yeah. I know, I'm gonna love it. It's just I might do it after I'm done you know, my year end year end list because I can guarantee you, once I start watching it, that's all I'll watch for yeah, like yeah, a few yeah. weeks. Yeah, that's why I haven't uh, started watching it either. <laughs> well, um, I haven't watched a ton either. Um, I actually I've done the uh, the now I guess famous in our circle double feature of Snowtown and Tyrannosaur. Although my double was separated by a couple days, because I, you know, I watched I watched one uh, right after we recorded last week, and then my Thursday to Saturday is always shit. So uh, then which I one did it. you watch? Which one did you watch first? I watched Snowtown first. Uh, that's how I did it, though. To be fair, I think that one's the more depressing of the two. But mine, right. but mine were like a month apart. So I liked Snowtown a lot. I liked the way it's filmed. Um, I think between the two movies, I liked Tyrannosaur more. 
um, largely because I like I like the uh, I like the performances in Tyrannosaur more. I, I'm not sure why. It just it just worked with me better. And when I say this, it's like I mean I'm I'm talking like a nine and an eight point seven five. I mean it's not like uh, I liked one more a lot more than the other. Yeah, it's uh, I like it's kind of like me. I'm just reverse. I like Snowtown just a tad bit more, and I like Tyrannosaur. Yeah. Um, I just I think I give the edge to Trans uh, Transfer, sorry, Snowtown only because I think it is more not saying Tyrannosaur doesn't hit you hard, yeah. but I think you know Snowtown is more you know visceral with yeah, it, yeah. as where Tyrannosaur is more of a you know character piece, character study. But uh, so but, yeah, I like I like both of those a lot. And, and yeah. um, oh, and talking going back to TV shows, um, so I've been trying to watch. So we got Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy at our theater. So I was like, oh, you know what? Instead of watching the movie, I'm going to watch, because Zom's been recommending it, I'm going to watch the BBC miniseries. Mm-hmm. And fucking, if I can't keep up with this thing at all, like, I, I just watch an episode, I'm like, what the hell did I just watch? I'm like, I, it's just like, you know, there, there's not a lot that goes on outside of checking files and talking to people. And uh, I don't know. I'm hoping that I, I've gotten through three of the seven episodes, and I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. So maybe it's just not for me. I don't know. I guess I need more like shit exploding. I'm not. I'm, I, I used to make. I'm, I'm become. I've become the person I used to make fun of. Like, oh, what do you need an explosion to make it good? But maybe I need an explosion <laughs> to make it good now. <laughs> um, Couldn't hurt to try. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the uh, I watched the two movies for our show this week. Um, we'll be reviewing. Uh, we did. We're doing for uh, for Mr. Higgins. We're doing a Michael Caine Magnificent Bastard double feature of uh, Alfie and Victory. And um, I like both. Um, yeah, I've, I've, it's been a while, but I've seen Alfie, and I really enjoyed that one. Uh, I've got around to seeing Victory, though. I've always wanted to. So. It's, it's cool. I've never seen a soccer movie before. so Yeah, um, yeah everybody's pretty fun. Yeah. And um, then last night, uh, I'm going to be on Podcast Without Honor Humanity this weekend. And I watched one of our two films, uh, Temptress of a Thousand Faces, which is a uh, Shaw Brother, late 60s Shaw Brother remake of the French film Fantomas. So that was uh, pretty crazy too. So I've watched all these movies now that I'll have reviews for on other shows, but this was, um, I, I had a lot of fun with this one. It's, um, it's cheesy. It's very colorful. Um, and the, the heroine just kicks ass. So, so yeah, that was it for me. Um, we don't have to take a break here because I don't even have one. So um, maybe if uh, Sammy wants to put one in, I'll just sing for a minute so he has a break. So, all right, we're back from break. Um, Already, <laughs> this is right. we're, we are going to be reviewing now a, uh, like I said, a the Congolese film from 2010, Viva Riva, and uh, let me uh, get the information up here. This is directed by. Joe Munga, I'm going to say that. Uh, he also wrote it. Um, this was interesting because this is a film that uh, you don't you don't see a lot of films coming out of the Congo, and I know this is you know a place that's just hit hard with poverty and you know political issues, just as a lot of African nations are. And um, you know to see a film of this, I guess budget and quality coming out of an area that you know obviously has some some large issues going on is pretty it's pretty cool so yeah. um 
This is quite the plot summary on IMDb. I know. I'm looking mm-hmm. at this. It's uh, like, a par- like two paragraphs crammed into one. <laughs> so, well, basically, the, you've got a guy, Riva, who has been in Angola for about a decade. And he has figured out how to get uh, – and, and the Congo has um, – and I, I'm bad with my geography. I assume they're right near each other, right beside each other, or at least close enough to – not have to drive days to get to one another. Um, Riva is from the Congo, but has been gone, and he's figured out how to get a lot of fuel back to this particular city in the Congo. And they say the name of the city on the poster, on one of the posters, Kinasha or Kinasha, Kinshasa. And um, they have a fuel crisis in the Congo, so he has brought this fuel back to um, make some uh, serious money. And in the process, he is stepping on the toes of a local Kinshasa gangster as well as somebody back from Angola. So then it goes from there. And um, he's also falling heavily for one woman. Right. So hot. All right. So yeah. um, do one of you guys want to, uh, want to start uh, take the, take the reins with this one? Well, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, um, as you mentioned, obviously, this uh, he comes back. You know, there's no fuel left in this town. He's smuggling some in illegally, you know, to make the money. And as I said, he falls uh, right when he gets here. You know, he once he you know meets his family, he falls in love with a woman named Nora, who is as Loaf said, very, very sexy, very hot. Except oh I didn't really have to. I did not have to see her take a piss. I mean, I literally. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I can see if some people that get turned on by that, thing, so. but. That hey, was surprising. Something something hot about it though. She she hiked that dress way up and she had some great fucking legs, man. I just expected them to cut away when she started with the leakage, but no, we've seen it. <laughs> no, no, it was pure penthouse up in there. <laughs> <laughs> At least she was just pissing, that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> and she has played I'm gonna have to look her up. She uh which I did not do, of course. Manny Malone is her name, or Manny. And I'll look she her is- up while you're and her, uh, I guess you could say, uh, crap, what's the word? Um, okay, her love interest, let's go with that one. Her squeeze, that's the word I'm looking for, is uh, Azor, who is one of the uh, guess good gangsters of the town. He's played by, uh, I'm going to probably butcher this name, Diplome Emekindra. Probably not even close. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go with that. I don't think any of us will know. And obviously, and, uh, so obviously, Reva's not afraid of this guy. Just the fact that he always, you know, he's got men, he, he's back him up. Like, he's in a bar and, uh, a club, and he has his, ma- the man sent to him, and all he does is just quickly cranks a bottle, uh, uh, breaks a uh, glass wine on his head. And then what I loved was to save himself, he bought rounds for the whole, whole club. <laughs> <laughs> that was smart, just to get them all like, excited and get him out. I'm like, that was genius. Reva's an interesting character because, you know, typically in gangster films, you're going to have the, the hero that becomes a hero when, despite all odds, or you're going to have the, you know the guy that's just a badass. He's going to carry a gun and blah blah blah. And Riva's really neither of these. He he's obviously street smart, but what what works for him is that he just kind of doesn't care. Like he he's kind of an easygoing guy that is doing some pretty heavy shit. He doesn't ever carry a gun. I don't think I ever saw him in the film with a gun. And, mm-hmm. um, and he just relies on like just his charm to get by, and it works well for him. The only thing I could criticize is, and I didn't think it was too bad, but I do wish that sometimes he would have been a bit more vulnerable because there are times when he's in danger. He's just a bit too cocky for me, but yeah. I just, I'm not. 
but I mean, it's his character and it works. I'm just not always the biggest fan of that, but right, it right. wasn't too bothersome. I mean, I think he pulled it off well, and he does at least in a one scene, you know, show his vulnerability. So he at least made amends with me. And uh, one of the lines when uh, right when he kind of you know because he's basically stalking Nora in a playful way. I mean, he's not going to rape her or anything. Um, but one of the, when she's talking to her, uh, one of the things uh, he said, and Loaf posted this picture on the gentleman's page, and it is. I've just had village women for 10 years. Horrible with sagging tits. <laughs> uh, there's some really good lines of dialogue in here. What was yeah. that? Oh, there was another one. Oh, yeah, here's another one from a little later on in the film. And Nora says this to uh, Azor as they're getting into a big fight. She says, you sit on your ass watching porn all day, then go into the bathroom. You joke off and come onto the floor. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that... That sounds like a typical day for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, what, what was the problem there? And I, yeah, I don't, I don't the floor. It makes the floor sticky. Yeah, well, but don't go in that bathroom. I mean, look, the, what I'm saying is they look like they had a lot of bathrooms. They're one of the few people that are wealthy in this rundown, uh, poverty-stricken area, which I got to say, it, it's horrible to see you know, stuff like that, but it's also refreshing, for at least for film. Mm-hmm. And I think the scenery helps a lot in the film, especially because it adds to the fact that this is really a desolate land, and these are you know the very few. And it works well with Reva because everybody else is pretty much depressed or just trying to get by, and he's this you know cocky, happening dude, you know, just walking around without a care in the world. And then, and then so there's, think, the, there's the guy, the the uh, I guess the the I guess it would be the opposite of of Reva almost uh, uh, Cesar or Caesar or Caesar, Caesar or but he he's from Angola and all he does is just look down on this situation. So apparently Angola is in a little better situation than what he's found here. But I mean, he even says to somebody at one at one point he says, "Well, you know, it probably would have been better if you just stayed colonized. Like, you know, it's a mess here, and they, there's constant racial slurs thrown out by him and his guys." Um, Rich Loaf will not make any rich slurs, I promise. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and I do like uh, that he's wearing all white because there was that old joke that, and maybe this will be tipping wise for me, but that wealthy black man always wear black, uh, all white. It's uh, a little inside joke because I always found that. I kind of found, I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if that was purposeful or not. But, um, but yeah, obviously he's kind of like, I guess you can say somewhat of a kingpin, I guess. I mean, he uses, he uses, uh, Minions, and he's uh, trying to convince this one woman. Who is it? Da, da, da. Ah, cry. I feel horrible. I don't have her name. But uh, I take it. Is she, you know, I guess working for the federal offices, I guess? Oh, in, she, she never had a name. They just called her, like, Commandant yeah. or Commander yeah. or something like that. And she was part you know, of the convinced- military. Yeah, and he convinces her to kind of like uh, work with him by literally pulling out the daughter card. Uh, or sister, it's a, a sister. Yeah, he, sister. I'm sorry. Why did I say daughter? Daughter. Yeah. So yeah. So he kind of coerces her into helping out. So he gets the, I guess, the military. So he, he, it's weird because you have the military almost. I don't know. It was weird exactly what she was. They had an out. They had a like an outpost and everything. But then the cops were separate from her, and so you get a kind of a little triangle going on. And then one uh, shortly right after that, and kind of shows you how volatile uh, he is, uh, Cesar, is uh, the driver. They end up to get information on him. They just beat the shit out of the driver. And then they get like hot coal and they just pour it on top of him. Ooh. And that was painful. I'm like, ooh. And it almost kind of also made me think of uh, Fire the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, where he grabs that big hot coal and just jams it into the guy. 
<laughs> the this only, one's more realistic, obviously. The, the only thing I remember, it's been so long since I've seen Jason Takes Manhattan. The only thing I remember from that is is the scene in the sewer when he like he turns around without his mask on and says like "mommy" or something, and then like, yeah, that, and then throws up. Do I remember so, that correctly? Does he actually throw yeah, up? He throws up water. He throws up water. <laughs> That's it's, so dumb. It, it's, it's so dumb. And I kind of li- and I like that film. I've got a soft spot for it, but it's just because it is so dumb. <laughs> I need to see that. Like again. That, you also gotta remember there's that one scene in that movie. We're gonna sidetrack quick, where the one kid, the boxer, and I'm t- fighting on top of the building. He keeps like hitting Jason, and then Jason one fell swoop just literally uppercuts his head off, and it lands directly into a track. <laughs> it lands directly into a dumpster with the lid falling on top of it. It is it. so freaking cheesy. I love that movie. <laughs> but anyway, back on track. Uh, another thing I want to mention in the bar was there uh, one of the uh, Azor's henchmen has uh, this tattoo on his head that's like the atomic radiation logo. I missed that. I did not see that. I did too. I, I, yeah, it was it was briefly, but I noticed it, and I, I, first thing I thought of was always because being a big wrestling fan was Bam Bam Bigelow oh, with yeah. the head tattoo, mm-hmm. or Adam but Bomb. Adam Bomb, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a gimmick! Hey, at least he survived longer than Max Moon. <laughs> Fucking terrible. Oh man, there was the early to mid nineties just had so many horrible wrestling gimmicks. <sighs> anyway, back on topic. Another great line was uh, just this goes to show what Viva is like. Uh, Viva Riva is like is when he's uh, trying to coerce and win over the heart of Nora. He tells her, "A woman like you deserves to be with me." That's some fucking confidence, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and but it still doesn't work and. She says you're too small for me. Now I, I believe she says that to Reba, right? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Because mm-hmm. I have it written right below it. So I take it that's who she was in the, saying in the club. Me. Yeah, where they were in the club, and he. I was just curious because I knew her. she. Because I knew she was. You know, she obviously had problems with Azor too, so I couldn't remember if maybe she said that to him or not. But so, but he does. He continues to coerce, and he finally gets with her after Azor uh, sells uh, one of her family earrings. It pawns it off, and in a you know twist of faith, there Riva is able to purchase it, and finally gets on her good side, and then gets to eat her pussy through the gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, through yes. a window. I've never yeah. seen that yeah, before. The, gate, the gate window. I'm like, nice. That was a that was a first. So sure. uh, I've never. seen Oh that yeah, either. and also it's gonna be random, but uh, when Riva is talking to. Uh, Mother Ito, I believe, he uh, in the beginning, he's because she's trying to hook him up, you know, with some ladies, and he goes, Riva needs firm tits. After all those sagging tits, you know. Yeah, the, the village women weren't cutting it for him. He needed some perkies. <laughs> and he, he fucks a lot of women in this movie. Uh, yeah, later in the film, he goes to, uh, uh, again, to Mother Ito's and and uh, I don't want to say just going to cut some horrible, but it's one of those where the, uh, the women are kind of have to uh, like get kind of like paint the dry paint on them. Yeah, that was the really weird. I, yeah, yeah uh, but weird sequence. I, I love that fucking scene because that I, that scene really it really cemented the originality of this film because this film could have been a standard just gangster film, but the setting just like yeah. th- that cemented it, and it's like it, it's such a different world that you know. If that if that wasn't an American movie, you'd be like, "What the fuck?" But it kind of fits here, you know. <laughs> it fits. And also, if this would have been an American movie, I think it would have been more run of the mill. Yeah, like yeah. It, mm-hmm. you know, would have ran because you would probably use a lot of the same settings, like Chicago or New York or something. So it was nice uh, to get new settings. Um, 
Oh, there's another weird line here, and this goes to – and I know what he was saying, the guy that says this. He was trying to set Reva and them up, but this is how horrible it was. Now, Reva mentioned – said, I need to shoot my load, and the guy responds, I'll help you if you want. I'm like, whoa! <laughs> 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 I don't think that's the kind of help he's looking for, but then he goes back and he retrieves a woman. He actually, I'm sorry, he got it for uh, Reva's, I guess, assistant. Mm-hmm. Because Reva, because the woman was a little husky, and she she would do. He obviously didn't like her, and this just made me think of the silver and gold episode because it really looked like he was about to donkey punch her. <laughs> and maybe it's only because I recently listened to the silver and gold episode from last week, but <laughs> I'm like, how fitting that would be. Did you see? Did you see that uh, Jeopardy clip I posted? I did. Oh my <laughs> so God, hilarious. that guy had to be embarrassed. Oh, uh, and Alex Trebek almost, I think, lost it, but just kind of like stepped right by. Did you get that? Uh, I haven't seen that. I will have to look. It's for a, it. it's a clip. It's a, it's they're ta- the the category is like punches, and this one's like a quick uh, something, a rapid punch to the back of the neck, and blah blah blah. And the guy, and, the first guy that answers says, "What is donkey?" And everybody's like, "Eh," and then oh. and the woman says, "Rabbit," which is the right answer. Which <laughs> he's probably gonna get so many weird looks now from his family. He's so gonna he have explaining to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, Lucy, his mother, his mother's like, "So I looked up donkey punch, Alex." I don't know why I picked that name. I apologize, um, um, can you explain yourself? <laughs> uh. This just in, Rick Santorum won the GOP Iowa caucus with 34 more votes than Mitt Romney. Ah. Creep, creep. All right. Creep. <laughs> Sorry, just, I just keep everybody up. Rick keep Santorum, up. you say, I'm going to Google the hell out of that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, sorry, you kind of distracted me there. Uh, Riva finally does get... Uh, Nora, not after eating the pussy, takes her back to his apartment and gets to have sex in the bathtub and all over, and on the bed. But uh, I like the bathtub sequence, actually. Oh, my God. Um, but okay. then, so, so banging in a, in a bath just really – it doesn't work in real life very well. No. But, no. Well, but for God damn, in the movies, is it so hot. There's a There's a scene in – what was that? What's the What's the one – it's the uh, it's a it's a very early black exploitation. The dude's got long hair, and he kind of got um, he kind of got uh, forced into this role. He never could uh, quite act outside of this. It was and it had a sequel. He drove a big giant like Cadillac with armor all over it. Basically, what the hell movie am I thinking? I'll just say Dolomite, but I don't think that's no, it. No, no, it's a, it's a Mac. No, there's uh. another one. It's, a, it's, a, it's an it's an obvious one that I'm gonna feel dumb for forgetting. But anyway, there's a there's a, uh, a bubble bath sex scene in that one that's so fucking hot. So <laughs> something about you the know, bath in the movie works. I, I'm gonna quickly look up bubble bath. But what, whatever bathtubs they've got, these movies are apparently larger than your standard size bathtub. Though. Yeah, I, I know because they could fit. The, they had enough room to both get in there and have enough space. I my bathtub, I can't even fit in myself. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and they had they had room to roll over and everything, and then uh, I think I, I, the the water in 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 real life practice just adds a whole like problem to the whole situation where it doesn't seem to work uh, be a problem at all in the movies. Of, of course, they're probably just you know they're just moving around there. In the movies, you can fucking bang somebody's leg and it's fine. So <laughs> they also I think just had a tub so they didn't have faucet to contend with. The faucet does add another tricky element, yes. And, uh, Amy Malone is so hot. I was, <laughs> I was very happy that she took it off for that scene. 
Olympic finally. But oh, so am I. Oh, she was. The, the tits. Um, might have, the tits might have been fake. It's possible. Yeah. They were a little too Slight. nice. Yeah, but hey, everything else was still nice and real. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure where that piss was coming from was elegant. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> what a way to compliment a lady. And then uh, the next morning, though, he wakes up, and I love this little scene because uh, she's left the bed, and now Azor is laying in the bed, and Riva doesn't know this right away. He begins to rub Azor's leg. And then he just looks at him and he goes, "Good morning." And then he just starts stomping the shit out of Reba. Oh yeah. And that was you could hear that too. First, I thought they were like drilling him or something, like they had something in their hand, were like drilling him with something because it didn't sound like stomping. Right, right, like, right. It sounded like I was like, "What the hell are they doing to him?" And I was like, "Oh, they're stomping." And I'm not finding anything on this exploitation. Superfly. There you go. There is a there is a sexy bath scene in Superfly. God, I'm that dumb. Goes, Superfly, come on. I didn't think about it right away either, so. Right. <laughs> I know. Well, it was in my head. I was giving you very little because I can't speak sure. English most times, so. Uh, da, da, da. I don't know if I have too many more notes because uh, I kind of kept it light because I think the more we go in, because about that point where, you know, the big, you know, big showdown between all three kind of collides and that would kind of go into the spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna lead it off to one of you guys now. Zach, do you want to sure. spill anything? Um, I, I only have a few things that okay. we haven't uh, touched on, but uh, yeah, definitely the setting added a whole lot mm-hmm. to the whole thing. And and I, I really think that if you strip the setting away and the sex and everything, and really just look at the basic plot, it's really a basic you know 1930s 1940s gangster type film. Yeah, like you could put James Cagney in it and clean it up, and it would be fine. Um, the gas would have been like. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I'd be more interested if you put James Cagney in it and didn't clean it up. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> they, uh, I think the, the gas would have been cigarettes or something like that. Yeah, or alcohol yeah. or something like that. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, I, I kind of like that, that it, it was in this, you know, crazy exotic place, but the story really at its base was, you know, a traditional gangster type of tale. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, I had the tribal sex. We've already talked about that. Um uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is uh, that uh, if if you want love and family in this movie, you're just going to get the shit knocked down of you. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, I don't remember his buddy's name, but uh, that, that guy's not in a situation he likes very much. No. JM, was that his name? I think that's who it was. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, between his situation and the uh, situation with Riva and his parents... Oh, and fuck, uh, yeah, Riva's. Oh, my God. I mean, it, I, I think both those scenes went a long way to establish that even though these two guys are your main protagonists, they're not really good guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, it kind of, again, back to the old gangster movies, it made me think about the, the famous grapefruit scene where uh, James Cagney shoves the grapefruit into his girlfriend's face. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, similar kind of thing. I mean, there's just, there's no love. It's just all about getting money and whatnot. And you can see it in this desperate society. I mean, that's, you know, what's driving so many people's ambitions. Uh. And the, I mean, I guess hearkening back, like, to the, you know, back to the, like, 30s style gangster films, like, even, I think they, you know, having Riva dress and look as she did, like, really, you know, puts that, that, that emphasis on that because she kind of looked like one of those glamorous women that would be in a nightclub and stuff 
and really stood out next to the other women that she would have been walking around. And even on the poster they have on IMDb, you know, she almost has like a twenties hairdo. She's got the sparkly dress on and right. Um, and and Nora's kind of a name from that era mm-hmm. as well. Yep. You know, little Nick and, and Nora and, and Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think I haven't. I don't think I have anything else we haven't really touched on yet. That's cool. The um, but the uh, Caesar. We, we didn't really talk a lot about him. Caesar is the guy from Angola that is after Riva, and Caesar must be a badass where he comes from. In 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 the Congo, with the no, it's, it has a different name now. It's like the it's the Republic of Congo or Cong. Uh, I don't know. So DNC Democratic Republic. Yeah, of Congo? DRC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he. Uh, He's a fish out of water here. Now, he's trying to be a badass, but the people have their own shit to worry about and don't really care about him too much. So that he kind of gets to wander around at times. Um, he, he, yeah. has, he has a couple speed bumps. but And did anybody else get a, like a like a Dwayne Wayne vibe from him a couple times? He looked like an, <laughs> yeah, he, he looked like an older... Uh, what is that guy's name? The, the, his crazy yellow glasses definitely yeah. helped that out. <laughs> The but um oh and uh, and Riva kind of looked like uh, Omar Epps a few times. So. Oh, I thought that too. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just trying to figure out who that would look like. And I did want to touch upon um how you were mentioning how you know everybody in the town has their own things to worry about. There is a scene where Caesar is just beating the shit. Uh, actually, punches the uh, military woman we were talking about, and everybody just keeps walking without yeah. even batting it. Yeah, yep. I mean, like, uh, Nora gets slapped around and, like, runs out of a car screaming, and everybody just com- carries along with their business. There's gunfire that, you know, and th- that apparently that's become commonplace, too. And, again, all of that kind of adds to the setting of this film, so. Right. Uh, one other thing about Caesar that, that kept coming up in my mind with his, his white outfit, and uh, I, I just couldn't help thinking about Dirty D from Pootie Tang. <laughs> yeah. He kept that. He kept that. His white suit clean for a long time. When I know there were some damn muddy streets there. So I know it was impressive. I was like, this is like Dirty D's opposite brother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he. Uh, I mean, he had some good lines. You know, he talks about carving out someone's vagina and feeding their ovaries to his dogs, and uh, uh, there he takes refuge, I guess, or he hides out in a in a I guess a monastery. I don't know some kind of church yeah. and. You know, he he has an interesting conversation with the priest there, and the priest says, "I don't want outlaws here." And he says, "Well, Jesus Christ was an outlaw," and um, he uh, he was an interesting character just because you know a lot of places he would have been horrifying, and a lot of the times here he was only horrifying to the people he was hurting at the moment. Where everybody else, he would just walk by other people in the street, you know, with thugs and guns, and nobody gave him a second look. So mm-hmm. that was kind of interesting. So. The um, but I, d- I did like the the relationship between the three of them because you know Riva had his own thing and he was kind of in the middle and you had this big guy from Angola on one side and then you had him having trouble with another local guy but the local guy seemed way below Riva like he was just like he was just a bully um, I just like the the triangle that happened between the three like gangster guys in the film that was kind of a cool little twist. And when Caesar's guys finally catch up with Azor, oh my God, do they work him over? And and the oh my, I don't know what it was. I thought I'd never seen this in a movie either. So this is a movie of firsts. We get to see Cunnilingus. We get to see Yodeling in the Canyon through a window, <laughs> and we also get to see 
a dude on laying on his stomach get punched in the balls, but then clawed immediately afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, that, was, that was brutal. They just held him up by the back of his pants. Oh my god. So now there's a there's a few scenes I did I guess have issue with. Um, it gets a little formulaic or kind of cheesy. I guess yeah. it's when they finally uh, when when uh, Caesar catches up with Riva. They kind of cheat a little bit to split them back up again. Um, I won't go into that because it's kind of it's, yeah. It's but I, had, I know what it, you're referring. Yeah, and I know what you're referring to, and I agree completely. And I gotta that, say, that kinda, they, I, I like the fact that they 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 told a story well by not having guns play a part from the beginning. But when the guns yeah. finally come into play, some of the, when people get shot, it's some of the worst fucking acting ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like somebody makes- shot, and they're just like oh, and kind of like I mean. There's not, like, with a cinematic gunshot, it wants to be loud. The guns are not loud in this movie. And people, like, flinch and look like they're in pain or they're gone immediately. The people here just kind of, like, go, oh, like you might have just punched them. And, (laughs) uh, you know, that was kind of weird. I'm I'm curious if maybe they filmed maybe some of the later scenes with the guns first and then kind of noticed it wasn't working out for them. So maybe they had guns in the beginning of the film. (laughs) But they were like... You know what? We're gonna shy away from this. <laughs> it definitely seemed like they they never cut to the repercussions of guns right, anywhere. Yeah. Like, so it seemed like they probably couldn't afford any kind of special effects for a gunshot wound. Uh, so yeah. they, they yeah. kind of had to avoid that. Well, it could be squibs get expensive. I'm sure. So yeah. Well, um, we can go ahead and get into our scores and stuff. Justin, I'll let you take over there. Actually, before we do that, I did want to bring up a uh, kind of just. Uh, three of the actors. For starters, uh, Pat Pat Chabay, who was playing Riva. This is his only film he's done, only acting he's done. Cool. So that, looking at that, that alone actually gives me more praise for him. Um, unfortunately, Mary Malone has only done uh, six other things. One of them a short film, one a TV movie, and the other one's just a TV spot. And then the guy who played Caesar, I can't believe I'm being able to tie this back into Bucky Larson, but he start he had a guest spot on an episode of Pan Am with Christina Ricci. Everything uh-huh. else, nice. this seems to be in his area, but I'm just thinking that's that that just seems like a random. I mean, I guess obviously they went in that area. It just seems I, I kind of w- want to see that episode now, just because w- I'm imagining him playing the same character. He won. <laughs> he won an African Oscar for this performance, and he actually is from Angola. Oh, and it also says he is an African Oscar winner for his performance as Caesar in Viva yeah. Rivera. Best I African- just said that. Jesus Christ! Listen to me. Yeah, but for the MTV Movie Awards, did you say uh, that? No, no, no. Well, no, I said he won the African Oscar for this performance. Oh, okay. But he also won the Movie Awards, too. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's that's what really counts. That's what I'm saying. He won the, uh, that one's more important, Lo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, um, I like the film. Um, I'd say my uh, MVT would definitely be the setting. Yeah. Uh, I think that definitely sets it apart from other films, and it gives it more scenery. And obviously, we got onto a, a tribal sex. It just wouldn't work. In other areas, right, right. It, it lets it stand itself out. Um, make or break. I'm going to go with the uh, script and mainly the dialogue. I liked. I know I said I had a few problems, you know, with Reva being a bit. Uh, I guess not showing too much vulnerability. But at the end of the day, I loved his character. I loved his, you know, cocky kind of like, right. You know, no holds barred attitude. I liked Nora. I liked how you know kind of strong willed she was. Azor, you know, was just there. But I like Caesar. So I, that, I think that's the strong suit. I'm gonna still. I'm gonna give this a seven point five, which might seem low, but I did still really enjoy it. It's just it is you know formulaic, and as we said, it somewhat falls apart near 
bit at the end. Yeah. But I'd still say definitely check this out because it's it's definitely interesting and a different, especially if you're in the mood for like a a gangster type of film because this one's definitely different mm-hmm. while still you know paying homage to the ones from the 30s and 40s. Cool, Zach. Um, I'm going to go with uh, for my MBT. I'm going to go with Pat, the performance of Pacha Bay. Um, I thought he was super good, yeah. Um, and really was the grounding force to draw you into all these events. And if if he wasn't interesting or or, or relatable, then uh, the movie would fall apart really quick. Um, so I really liked him. Uh, for my Baker break, I'm going to choose a scene, and uh, it's the scene where uh, Cesar is. Uh, torturing azor and then he says uh well we've got to be more ruthless <laughs> um and that really i think described a lot of of the gangsters actions in this is everybody thought they had to be more ruthless more badass more you know violent to make whatever you know their dreams happen right um so i, I really think that summed up a lot of of uh these guys thinking and i think uh, they kind of oh, i don't care oh, i just think that uh works well so you know kind of why I like the dialogue because they kind of tells the story without, you know, in simple lines like that without actually having to, you know, break down like 10, 20 minutes, stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I liked how they could do it so quickly like that. Yeah. Um, overall, I give it a seven. Uh, and I agree. I think it's uh, a good movie to watch. I think fans of old gangster movies will find a lot to like and uh, people who like um, film will find a lot to like. I think it's, it's a good flick to check out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my, my MVT is also the, the setting of the film. Um, this, this would be, like we said, a standard gangster film set in the United States or Europe. But, uh, you know, this kind of, this kind of story set in this, in this, well, very foreign to us setting is, it, it, it makes it a lot more interesting and compelling of a story. And uh, my make or break ties into that is the actually Riva banging the painted chicks, the tribal <laughs> because that it doesn't it doesn't present that scene as shocking. It presents no. it as shocking to one character because or well not even I mean she come like somebody kind of sees it going on and it's not like there's not a look of. Like what the fuck's going on here? You know, and it it, because it fits and it it really cements the you know how much different this would be to us. And I'm I'm curious what how you know someone from Congo or someone from Angola would view this if it if this would be if they would say the same kinds of things like you know if this would be a uh, you know the setting makes this movie you know I mean or is this real life or how accurate and that kind of thing. So uh, Um, my score. Like I said, the the some of the writing was a little, I guess, too easy at by the end of the film. Um, it's a it's it's a great accomplishment, I think, for a movie. You know, I don't, I've never seen a Congolese movie, so I don't know what kind of quality they have. But I have seen some uh, Nollywood movies, and I got to say, eek. so if that's, <laughs> yeah. if that's any uh, if that's any you know comparison, this is a. This movie's a, a you know jumped over a lot of hurdles to get made, and it looks it looks good. And it's I mean, well acted for for really what appears to be only one truly trained actor, uh, that being Caesar, the guy that played Caesar. Um, but as a film itself, it's still you know it fails a few times, but I, I still quite enjoy it. I give it a right. I'm, I'm right with Zach. It's uh, six point seven five, maybe even leaning towards a seven. Uh, it's it's solid. It's really worth your time. Um, and it's on instant, so if you're in the United States, 
check it out. So, and uh, even in Canada, I believe, because I think Will checked into it on. Yeah, yeah he did. He did. Um, so, and as I was saying to you, gentlemen, before, I'm going to play a little voicemail here from a, from a very very familiar voice. So, here we go. Hey boys, it's uh, Willie, uh, co-host of the Gentleman Mission Patch of Midnight Cinema. Uh, first, let me thank all of you for filling in, keeping the streak alive. Uh, Sandy and I had fizzling problems. I had a, a rather bizarre ask to sleep in. My phone died Sunday morning, so my alarm died with it. And then uh, get some baby situations, happy babies to sleep. So it just wasn't meant to be, and then the rest of the week's been uh, a bear to try to work something out. So anyway, uh, thank you to those of you, my gentlemen, that filled in for us. Um, my thoughts on Fever Reba. This is a film that I had a lot of anticip- anticipation uh, for. That heard about it at TIFF. You know, you get the TIFF guy to read about the film. And one that really piqued my interest. The problem was it just didn't work out schedule-wise for me to see it. Now, I wish you and a few other friends of mine had seen it. I had really good things to say about it. Uh, and in fact, Vishnu compared to sort of a Euro crime film, besides Kinshasa, instead of Napoli or Torino or a variety of other uh, Italian cities. Now, the film on the whole um, probably wasn't as. I, I had envisioned it as sort of a Guy Ritchie esque stylized film set in Africa, made by Africans. Um, that might have been an unfair judgment of the film because I think that uh, the film isn't quite, doesn't have quite that much polish to it. However, I'm saying that I think if we contextual in how we look at the film, um, if we were to compare this with a lot of other films that come out of the Congo, a country that, you know, really um, isn't in a good state. Did Will listen to this episode beforehand? Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard this voicemail yet. This is funny. Okay. In any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think it's tremendous that they were even able to get this film put together and made. So, um, contextually, it is a rousing success. Um, the film, for me, the thing I find fascinating, I was telling my wife, was I love seeing films take place in countries that you rarely get a peek into. Uh, I always lament as some of the sort of uh, exploitation asked films that came out of Jamaica, like The Heart of the Fall, Rockers, and a few others that uh, were set in Jamaica. I always lamented that Jamaica and other countries, uh, other African countries, or I should say African countries, so as not to uh, convince anyone that I don't know my geography. Um, basically, far-flung locales that don't really have a film industry. Um, I wished that they had more films made because I think it's a wonderful insight into uh, sort of a national sentiment, uh, a culture, pop culture, and an aesthetic kind <laughs> of mindset, certainly. Um, this one does a lot of things well. Uh, I, I found the, the kind of the frank, brutal nature and sort of the, gosh, uh, the, the amoral, uh, the amoral characters in the film. Everyone can beaver right down. No one's a white knight. Um, which is interesting, certainly. Uh, you know, you don't do a lot of times. You would see that with Viva, Viva, Viva would, wouldn't have banged those those uh, those African hookers in the tribal paint with the straw masks on. And I love that I can even say that. <laughs> but uh, just some of the stuff like that, some of the frank sort of uh, coarse nature and the frank brutality, like talking about cutting out the 
uh, ovaries and feeding them to my dog, and just kind of the, the, the brutality of it uh, was, was pretty uh, pretty alarming and eye-opening. Um, on the whole, I like the film. I think it's probably, you know, 7.25, maybe a 7.5 for me. Um, it's not a perfect film, but I think contextually it's a rousing success, and I'm glad that the film was made. Um, if I had to give it a make or break, it would probably be the opening scenes when they come into Kinshasa and we kind of see the scene when they're going to uh, Mother Ode or Odo or, or Odie or whatever. But a dog or a, an alien life form from Deep Space Nine, whatever her name was. Um, when they're going into that sort of the, the sort of red light district of the city, that was where I might make or break. Uh, MVT is the locale. Um, and I suppose, like I said, probably 7.25, 7.5. It's a good film. Definitely not a great film, but anyone who's an art show, I think, would certainly enjoy the film. So there you go. Thanks again, guys. Very curious to hear how you uh, how you rated. And that redhead, the main girl, and it was pretty hot. I have to give it up for even though I'm not into skinny uh, gals. She's finer uh, than Sherry Wine. So that's it. That's all. Peace. Adios. Adios. All right. So uh, uh, Big Willie calling there. I was hoping he was going to comment on the piss, but eh, what are you going to do? Because <laughs> 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 I think if he would have done that, he would have pretty much nailed everything that we discussed. Yeah. So. In, in like three minutes. I know, which is eerie. <laughs> cool. So, uh, yeah, uh, definitely check this out. And um, and uh, I was glad that we could uh, step in for the gentleman today. Um, it's cool having uh, having you guys be able to help like this. It's uh I appreciate the assistance. We My can, pleasure. Uh, yeah, thanks like, for having me. Like Will said, keep the streak alive. So, um let's see, uh Zomda sent a message says, Glad to see did you get this too? No. Glad to see they brought a crack team of miners in to fill the unfillable void of the samurai and large William. A masochist <laughs> and some fatty with tattoos and a moustache. Oh, and Zach. <laughs> Jolly good. <laughs> fill, oh. fill the gap. I just get an and. <laughs> oh. So uh, that's our review. And um, I'm, I assume we're happening first, but either way, we won't be on the end of the show. So this is when the gentleman would normally say adios. 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 Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Hendrickson. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com.
Okay, so here we are. We're going to try something a little new. Uh, Stand welcome to, I should say. Getting ahead of myself here, and I'm not even out of the gates. Uh, welcome to my half of episode 167. Initially, we were going to be covering two films as part of our program for Japan. Uh, program, for lack of a better description, that we've been running. Uh, however, last minute sleeping in by Will and last minute uh, <laughs> moody babies on Sammy's part. Uh, led to us having to nix the scheduled time and date we were going to record. And uh, it was the only day this week that was really going to work for us, so essentially we've had to nix that and come up with another Frankenstein episode. Um, so I don't know what you're going to get on Sammy's part. There was something he, he did have up in the air he was going to try to get out, but I've since seen that uh, Loaf and some other fellow gentlemen were going to potentially be reviewing Viva Riva for our show. So whatever you're going to get, you're going to get um, from some of those gentlemen or one of those gentlemen. And the other half you're going to get from me is something a little outside the box, but it was kind of serendipitous in that I had just uh, finished my list that I'm going to be doing for this show uh, the night before all this happened. I actually fell asleep pen in hand instead of cock in hand for once. Um, what I'm going to be doing is, uh, I'm also going to do a blog post about this, full disclosure. Um, and it also should be said I'm driving. I'm going to be driving home in rush hour, Toronto traffic, recording an episode. So you've heard me walk slash pant, sounding fatter and more out of shape than I am during TIFF in uh, the heart of the city, recording reviews. Now you're going to hear me driving in the heart of the city and out of the heart of the city. Uh, escape from T.O. instead of Escape from N.Y. Um, I'm going to be counting down the top 30 films that I've seen for the first time in 2011. Uh, so it's going to be a mixture of art house, outhouse, and everything in between. And uh, it should pose, uh, you know, should be fair, fairly interesting, I hope. And hopefully, you know, it'll provide you all with some films that you'll want to check out. Um, so without further ado, the first film on my list, uh, you also have to forgive me in that uh, I don't have IMDb in front of me. Well, I do, but it's I'm recording this on my phone, and I'm driving, and I'm drinking coffee, and I'm just navigating uh, the general uh, sea of humanity and steel and rubber uh, in my immediate and not-so-immediate vicinity. So I'm going to be kind of off-the-cuff, loosey-goosey. I may bumble some facts and not recall some key things, so bear with me here. Um, I like to think of this as my Terry Frost on the road episode. So, number 30 for me, and I am going to count them down. Um, see, with our top 10 of the years, we always go 10 to 1 and then 21 to 30, or 11 to 20, and then 21 to 30. But with this, there's such a myriad of films I could choose from that suspense if there is any, of course, uh, will still be kept. So, number 30, it's a film from Japan. Uh, I want to say it's from the late 60s. Let's say 1967-ish. Maybe a little before that. And it's, uh, it's Face of Another. Now, this is a film that, for those of you that have seen John Frankenheimer's film, I want to say it's called uh, Seconds. It's Rock Hudson. He plays a man who gets a, uh, a face transplant, as it were. And uh, in doing so, it, it certainly enables him to see things through different eyes, literally and figuratively. Now, this film, uh, you know, done in post-war Japan, a lot of the stuff in Japan is still kind of... Um, one of the themes about identity and so forth still really were pervasive in a lot of works of Japan at the time, and this film's no exception. 
Um, I think actually this one stems from a little bit more kind of pulpy uh, sources, which is the man wanted to, I think he wanted to catch his wife cheating on him or or he had grown tired of domestic life and wanted to have a little romp. I can't recall which it was, but either way, it's a pretty interesting look. You know, anytime you get uh, switched identities or, or or whatnot, I think it makes for compelling viewing, especially in the hands of good filmmakers. And, and this was a time in Japan was really, and still is for that matter, a powerhouse, and they were able to combine uh, pulp with with certainly more high uh, highbrow thinking and into you know a wonderful uh, cocktail. This being no exception. Um, Moving right along is my number 29, and this is a film from the Shaw Brothers. Uh, it's a film that actually is pretty batshit insane. It's probably one of the most insane films I've ever seen from the catalog. Now, I tend to be a little more well-versed in a lot of their more conventional films, although, you know, I like to stray outside, but some of the really bug-shit insane stuff that came in the 70s uh, and the early 80s admittedly is a bit more of a blind spot for me than I'd like. Uh, in saying that, my number 29 film is Holy Flame of the Martial World. This film, I mean, it just has it all. I mean, it has mummies, it has breakdancing demons, uh, it has incredible uh, martial art sequences and just lasers. Uh, it has a pretty Shakespearean plot, from what I recall. Uh, a brother and sister, or was it two, no, brother and sister, uh, their family's royalty, and you know, in a rather nefarious plot, what happens is uh, they're separated at birth and the parents are killed. One ends up uh, with a white hat uh, master, and the other one certainly more of a black hat master. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty good film. If you want something outside of the norm from your Shaw Brothers, you want pretty astounding martial arts, if you want just insane lasers and breakdancing and mummies and zombies and... And there's all sorts of insanity. You want a crowd pleaser. Holy Flame of the Martial World certainly does deliver that. Um, next up for me is The Big Heat. Now, this is one we reviewed on the show. Um, pretty fantastic. I, don't, I won't say too much about it here, simply because a lot of the stuff I have to say, uh, I said in the review. But this was one that we reviewed with Roop. It was on a back-to-back episode with, with Tony Arzenta, the Alain Delon Eurocrime film, a.k.a. Big Guns. Um, it's a pretty fantastic fucking uh, noir film, and myself being someone who's more as a bit of a blind spot, has been for a few years, I'd say it's as good a spot as any for someone to kind of jump into the fray with. Um, it's got some pretty astounding stuff. It's got a really grit, gritty uh, hero who's just bound to determine, you know, come hell or high water uh, to get his man. You know, is that Lee Marvin actually playing? You know, we're shooting, he's got the Grecian formula in his hair, and he plays a motherfucker who does something pretty nasty for a woman that, you know, hasn't been recreated too much on screen, especially at the time, so that one's a high wall, high recommend for me. Um, next up is a film that I really didn't have high hopes for. I kind of bought it on a, on a lark, because the director is someone that, although I admire their artistic uh, skill, I often find myself at odds with what I perceive to be their, their moral compass or lack thereof, and that's Larry Clark, and Larry Clark's film, What's Up Rockers? which uh, takes a look at uh, Guatemalan and South American skateboarders uh, living in South Central Los Angeles in modern times. Um, it's shot the way a lot of his films are, like Van Sant and a lot of these other guys, guys that use kind of uh, a verite style, and you know they certainly go about things a little bit differently. Um, he uses a lot of real, you know, real kids, 
Um, the thing I liked about this film was it had a lot of heart. It almost felt like the less fantastical um, Guatemalan American skateboarding cousin of Crow Zero in that it really, I think, poignantly captures uh, the free-spirited nature and the bond between boys quite well. And it doesn't devolve into the kind of leering pedophile or, you know, the, a lot of stuff that I get uncomfortable as I've gotten older watching from Larry Clark. You know, I, I like Ken Park and I even like I like kids and a lot of the other films that he's been associated with, but I just can't reconcile that he's guising his own uh, masturbatory fantasies as art and putting them on film uh, for all of us to see in a sort of less... Um, a less maniacal way than fucking Victor Salvo. But anyway, um, I really strongly recommend What's Up Rockers. If you've kind of grown tired of, of uh, Clark's stick, but you want to try something else on from him because you like his aesthetic, I highly, highly recommend this film. I really loved it. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. So, um, yeah, that is my number 27. So I'm going to just uh, move right along here. Um, I'm just, all right, so I'm back. Sorry, guys. I'm actually recording this on my iPhone, so I'm splitting it up into little pieces because i got to email it out. I'm trying to be cognizant of the fact that if I blather on for more than seven to ten minutes at a time, um, you're going to really be getting something that, that is difficult for me to send in one shot unless I get into Dropbox and other stuff that I just don't have the time for right now. Um, my number 26 is a film that was also covered on the show. It's a film that I've been sitting on for ages and ages and ages. Um, it's a Shaw Brothers film, coincidentally, uh, and that is, of course, The Black Tavern. Now, The Black Tavern is one, uh, unfortunately, is, is fucking very hard to get a hold of. The disc I bought was a Thai release. You know, thankfully, Thailand episode, a lot of these Shaw Brothers titles are a little more obscure um, for people to get a hold of, because, I mean, I loved the film enough that I wanted to own it. And this, this film actually came about, uh, there's two ways it came about. First way I'd ever heard of this film. Uh, to take it all the way back to my early podcast listening days, uh, back when I had never stepped in front of a microphone for the purpose of podcasting, I used to listen to a wonderful show called Genre Busters. And Genre Busters was a couple guys, specifically one by the name of D. Davis. Um, he, you know, big Choi Hawk fan, big, you know, big Hong Kong fan, as it were. And one of the films he talked about early on that, that stuck with me for probably, God, let's say five years or so, was the Black Tavern. Um, one of the reasons the Black Tavern stuck with me was I've often asked myself, especially when I've been in sort of barroom conversations with other cinephiles, you know, I've often said, you know, I love the Shaw Brothers, but their stuff plays well to children, uh, not to certainly discredit the films, but it plays well to children in that it takes on a very simplistic black hat, white hat approach. Whereas Spaghetti Westerns certainly have that more immoral feel, you get the gray hat, um, you know, the morally ambiguous characters that were so prevalent in 70s film. Um, you got some of this stuff from the Shaw Brothers, uh, you know, it, even into some sort of noiry elements with stuff like Kidnap with Lo Lee, which is a pretty pretty fun film, if a little long, about a kidnap gone really fucking wrong, uh, which also I would recommend. Um, but anyway, uh, as far as conventional martial arts films go... I didn't think that the Shaw Brothers really exhibited a lot of um, thinking of the times in that you would have, uh, you know, your moral, uh, I would say gunslinger, but that's certainly not the right term. Um, you're a moral kung fu artist. You know, Japan seemed to be a little ahead of them in that regard. 
uh, taking Chambara films and so forth and, and, and splitting them with, with a sleaziness. But anyway, The Black Tavern, for those of you that haven't listened to our review, I would say go back and listen to our review. It's a film that, um, you know, we quite loved, uh, specifically because it's really well shot. It's got a fantastic performance in it. Uh, one of the better uh, central female performances from... Um, uh, fuck. Sorry, I'm trying to go. I'm trying to merge here. Uh, come drink with me. Hi, May May. Her protege from I think is it that she's a protege or is it um, Golden Swallow? Fuck, I can't remember now. Anyway, got her protege in that. Uh, in this, I should say, is the central female performance, and she's really fantastic. She holds her own. Um, but really, the, the setup for this film, again, if you haven't listened to our review, is uh, a bunch of bandits catch wind that some, some gold is going to be passing through this tavern or this hotel, and all of them are trying to one-up each other and, and end up with the gold, as it were. Um, a lot of backdoor dealing and a lot of, a lot of trickery, a lot of kung fu treachery, a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff. So um, I highly recommend everyone check out that film. Uh, moving along, staying on the same continent... We have my number 25 film, which um, is a film that I also, uh, you know, was one of the ones that I kind of, unlike a lot of other films on my on my list, I'd at least had some familiarity with. It was one I had no familiarity with. It was a film that um, I read the synopsis, and in fact, I've read the synopsis for this film on the show. Um, but really, that's what hooked me, and that was um, uh, Tomisaburo Wakayama. I'm probably killing his name. I don't have the benefit of putting it in front of me. Lone Wolf, of Lone Wolf and Cub fame. Uh, he's in it, and he plays sort of a, a simplistic, almost like a, his character would be comparable to a more mean-spirited, predatory uh, version of uh, the Shiro Mifune character in, in Seven Samurai. Um, he stumbles upon this, uh, this man and woman one day, because what he does is he basically lives in the forest. He survives by uh, executing people that are passing through his, his land. He takes their stuff, you know, be it their, their possessions and so forth, or men's or women. And he has his way with it, and then he survives. So one day he, uh, he kills a man, and he takes his wife. But the wife's a lot more wicked than she would appear. I mean, she's batting her eyelashes. And she ends up really driving him insane uh, to the point where, I mean, she just is so manipulative towards him that this man that has brutalized a lot of innocent people early in the film, you end up, it elicits sympathy because of some of the stuff she does and how calculating he is. Because you end up looking at, you almost pity him as if he's this simplistic beast um, that just over and over is just getting twisted and turned and manipulated. So she does a wonderful job of that. And I think one of the things she does is she asks him to kill people and take their heads so she can recreate um, theater using their heads and using them as, as almost like dolls, using their heads as dolls to uh, perform to basically her every women desire. So he's collecting heads because she tells him to. Very much a Black Widow type. Uh, so it was a good film. I mean, a really cool film, one that I don't think is available uh, on, and unfortunately a lot of really... Uh, interesting under the radar Japanese films of the time aren't available on DVD. Uh, I, I, to be forthright, watched this through alternative means, through a fan subversion. And, you know, God bless anyone that's listening to our show that, that partakes in fan subs of films, whether it's from Italy, Japan, or otherwise. 
because a lot of times, you know, being cinephiles, these are films that we would never get to see, and it really is a shame. You know, I know a lot of Mishima's work uh, in written form, to take it sideways for a moment, uh, is not available because his estate, specifically I think it's his mother uh, or his wife, doesn't want it available to uh, the Guaylos. So anyway, it's unfortunate, but Under the Blossoming Cherry Trees is my number 25 film um, for 2011. All right, so the highway's moving on a better clip than usual, which means I'm not sitting in bumper to bumper. Maybe i got to record more fucking shows in traffic. It's a good omen. My number 24 is a film I didn't have a lot of high hopes for because I've, like a lot of people, I've typecast this actor. Uh, however, now that I've seen the error of my ways, I do everything I can to champion this film. In fact, I've done it recently. Uh, this is a, a remake of what's considered in a lot of cinephile circles to be a holy film, one that uh, really shattered a lot of uh, conceptions about filmmaking as a technique, uh, as, uh, as as far as aesthetics go. Um, it's a film that I think, personally, I don't care for too much. I don't care for this filmmaker too much. I find that he uh, sacrifices film for the uh, for the, the sole purpose of deconstruction for deconstruction's sake, and that is Jean-Luc Godard, and the film is Breathless. Now, of course, I'm not talking about watching his version of Breathless, with Belmondo, I'm talking about watching Jim McBride's 1983 version of Breathless, starring the one and only Richard Gere. Now, I talked about him being typecast because I think most of us, if we're going to look at it honestly and critically assess how we perceive Richard Gere, it's very much as the white-collar husband in films. You know, we, we rarely see him, you know, without a suit, or if he's without a suit, he's in his birthday suit. Um, he's another guy along the lines of Michael Douglas and Bruce Willis who likes to show off his bare ass. Now, <laughs> I'd, I'd heard about this film, to be honest, I think one of my favorite blogs in the world, if not my favorite blog, Moon in the Gutter. Uh, Jeremy's just exuberance over this film really compelled me to want to seek it out because, you know, when you, you get to, to following certain podcasters or, or bloggers or critics, you, know, you begin to put a little bit of faith in what they say, even if it goes against your better judgment, and I'm glad it did in this case. Um, Breathless takes a lot of the 40s American pulp and film conventions and aesthetics that were appropriated for 60s pop culture France and reappropriates them into this rockabilly comic book, um, southern fried, uh, hot rod American film that, that just works brilliantly and in fact it's you know you see this film and if you love Tarantino and you, you know what his influences are and and whatnot you can just this film you can tell that he watched this film and he jerked off and this has got to be a film that in his formative years he said this is the kind of film I want to make and he's done so over and over um, taking some of the stylistic cues and so forth uh, early on, there's, there's a scene when Gears driving through the, the desert in a hot rod, and the sky is really saturated red, and you know it almost feels like Sin City in spots. Um, but anyway, this film, I, I can't, I can't give it enough praise. I mean, it's really a fantastic film. Um, and in talking about the film and their pride, reappropriating everything to a, a more American aesthetic of the time, the glue that holds this film together is uh, Richard Gere. Because he gives one of the most whirlwind, force of nature performances I've ever seen. I mean, he does not stop moving. He's always on the hustle. 
Uh, he's just fucking fantastic in this film. His performance in this film is one of my top five or ten performances I've seen all year in films this year or otherwise. Um, I, I'd be stunned if anyone who loves our show doesn't, you know, they may find the film flawed, but they got to give it up to Pierre for his performance in this film, man. Just fucking fantastic. Early 80s Los Angeles looks great. Um, really good stuff. So, moving right along was, coincidentally, uh, another film that was featured on our show. And it was part of our program for Japan series. And one of our good friends and a fellow Cheesehead, should be said, Tyler Durden, picked this film. And that is, of course, Czechoslovakia's Shops on Main Street. This is probably the most recent one from our show that I'm going to talk about. Uh, it's a really interesting film. Another thing that I find, um, in some comments for a moment, Kurosawa does really well, and that is sometimes he takes things that on the surface seem very simple and, and strips them to their most their basic human core, and in that human core you find, you find a profound statement and observation about humankind and the themes that, that run through the film. And this film really, again, if you haven't heard our review, during, um, fuck, I know I'm, I'm watching this right now, either Slovakia or Czechoslovakia's occupation during Nazi Germany, um, a shopkeeper, a rather simple shopkeeper, not even a shopkeeper, a simple farmer, gets assigned uh, to be the quote-unquote manager of a locally Jewish-run business. This is this, uh, this shop on the main street run by this elderly Jewish woman because her husband's not around anymore. And the film really looks at... Um, it does something that, that a lot of anti-war films don't do, and that's it humanizes them uh, through day-to-day lives and day-to-day interactions um, in lives that, for the most part, have remained normal, meaning people get up, they go to work, they say hi to their neighbors, etc., etc. It's not like, you know, young boys getting carted off to war by the powers that be, and, and we see the, the tragedy and the hopeless and senseless nature of war and the big war machines through that. It's done through the eyes of this simple man and how he begins to realize uh, how evil the forces are that, that, you know, humanize something that to him was sort of a vague notion and probably a notion that he leered at a bit and that it was this Jewish woman. Um, and I think it, it strips away to a simple message that we all want the same things in life. We all are human. And it's got a really wonderful relationship between him and this woman at his core. Um, I really enjoyed the film. I was dreading it a little bit going, not dreading it, that's a harsh term. I wasn't as amped up for it as, as another one uh, that we were doing on the show at the time, but I was very pleasantly surprised to find that it held up for me very well. So, yeah, that is um, Shops on Main Street. Next up, another program for Japan. Uh, looks like, you know, I want to give kudos to everyone for for giving us, for sorting us out and giving us great films to cover because I know that Rick and I both, um, as much as we're, we're cinephiles and we love films, we can't get to everything. I mean, it's just this never-ending journey for all of us, this quest. And to have like-minded people be able to turn us on to films um, that we wouldn't get to see otherwise or wouldn't have seen otherwise or would have put on the back burner for years really is a wonderful thing. So next up, is a film that I've never even heard of, I don't believe. Uh, that's Giants and Toys. Now this film, I was picked by the Oli Maniac himself. Of course, he contrasted it with one I had seen before and quite liked, of course, Miguel Lamb's uh, Full Contact, which is pretty fantastic. But uh, this one, Giants and Toys, again, post-war Japan, astounding how quickly the country was built up to become an economic uh, superpower. But 
what it does is it, it looks at, at, at uh, industrialization and, and society's need to just one-up each other. It almost feels to me like at the, Far- the Fargo brothers, sure, well, uh, the Coen brothers could have done this film if they hadn't been alive in Japan at the time. What it does is it takes two rival candy companies and all their efforts to one-up each other, uh, especially through this this sort of simpleton girl with black teeth who becomes the mascot for one of the candy companies. And so things get kind of twisted on their ear in terms of people's uh, expectations uh, internally and externally as the viewer. So really fantastic film. It's got a decent release out there. I'm pretty sure it shouldn't be too hard to track down. Um, so I would highly recommend Giants and Toys. And on that note, I think I'm going to pause this motherfucker again and... Uh, and, and then I'll jump into my next one. So I will be right back in Uno Momento. Okay, next up is number 21. It's a film that I've been meaning to see for years, and I had just never gotten around to it. Uh, it's Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, uh, starring Jean-Louis Trignon. I, I never I never say his last name right, and I, I don't think I'm ever going to. But the, the great silence himself... Um, this is a film, again, it seems to be something that I hadn't realized until I think Tyler so astutely pointed out that I seem to have a strong fixation with films that look at the human dilemmas that we're faced with in fascist, uh, under fascist leaderships. And this, uh, of course, is one that happens that we, we find with the conformists. Now, for those of you that don't know what you're going to get with Bertolucci, you're going to get a sumptuous film. You're going to get something that visually is going to be very pleasing to the eye. It's going to have almost a bit of a soft, dreamy, very slightly surreal quality to it at times. Um, but it is going to really, um, you know, it's really going to work on you on a number of levels beyond just sort of a simple aesthetic or a, a shiny veneer. It's really going to, I think, dig in once you have a chance to think about it and let those ripples ripple out in, in the, the water that is your brain. Um, this film looks at a man who, uh, his family's been, I believe they've been assassinated or, or his father's been assassinated. He comes from a poor part of Italy and he's been assigned, he's, he's a bit of a secret service type guy. He's been assigned, um, and I, let me preface that actually this by saying, some of these films I haven't seen in close to a year, so if I'm getting some of the details wrong as I'm driving here, forgive me. Uh, he plays a man who's been assigned to assassinate a, a communist sympathizer or, or someone who's a, a flat communist. And it turns out that the man is his former teacher. And it brings along a lot of, and, and in some ways, mentor. Uh, and it brings a lot of questions, I think, about, about masculinity, about identity, about sexuality, as well as the politics of the time. Um, really some standout sequences in this film debating some of the merits of the merits of the uh, political ideologies it's a fantastic fucking scene near the end of the film in a rather foggy forest um, which seems to be a recurring visual motif in a lot of anti-war films uh, that I've noticed you know that I think about it as traffic begins to grind to a halt as you said um, so it's really a fascinating film and you know uh, Jean-Louis is, is a fantastic actor who you know, he's actually going to come up again on my list, full disclosure. Uh, he's someone that I think, you know, when I stopped and looked at him, uh, you know, we talked to a lot of the great actors of the time, American, European, and otherwise. I don't know if a lot of us mentioned him, but if you take stock of his filmography, there's, there's a handful, at least, of really important, really vital art films and, and uh, films in general that he was involved with that, um, 
then we got to give it up to them. So number 21 is the conformist. Next up, uh, to keep things in the same country, uh, I'll, uh, with a little marinara on the side, actually an extra heaping of marinara on the side, uh, we're going to look at a filmmaker who I really adore. Uh, he might be, as we go on and I see a few more of his films, so I've seen probably anywhere from six to eight. If I see another three or four that really knock me out, I'll have to kind of proclaim him as my favorite Italian genre director. Uh, well, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm beating this around here on the bush, and I'll just start the chase. I'm talking about um, Damiano Damiani and his film, which is really hard to find. It's called The Man on His Knees. Now, there's another film that I had to watch a fan subversion of. Because they don't believe there is a proper English sub-disc out of this film. It was one that I'd sat on. I'd had for quite some time. Um, I didn't really... I wasn't all that hot nuts to move on it very quickly, simply because... I've never been all that hot nuts on Giuliano Gemma. Uh, I find him passable. I find him, to be honest, to be a little bit milk toast, which I've said in reviews of ours before. He's got a look. You know, he played a big part of the Spaghetti Western uh, uh, movement in Italy. But I just, I've always felt like he's, he's very milk toast for me. He didn't have an edge. Uh, this film was the film that flipped me the other way for him, much like Gambling City. Luke Miranda vehicle did for me, uh, I think a year or two prior. And that is, you know, I really bought into um, Juliano Gemma in this film. As with any Damiano Damiani film, you're going to get a lot of political talk, a lot of socioeconomic talk, uh, certain uh, implied and otherwise uh, assumptions made about uh, regions of Italy by, by various other regions of Italy and their people. What this film really focuses on is it focuses on Gemma's character who is, uh, you know, he's been in jail, but he's not he's not a real bad guy, per se. He's just a guy who kind of got caught up in some things, kind of provides for his family. So he's got her to jail, and he, he runs a, you know, reasonably successful coffee shop in, in Napoli. And um, through circumstance, he ends up kind of tangled up in a web with some pretty powerful mobsters. And he's trying to just, it's sort of like a Luca Canali thing, manhunt. Um, in that it's a guy who's, who's kind of wrongfully accused of some things. And he's trying to free his name. He's trying to go to the, the quicksand that is the Camorra. But it just, the more you struggle, the deeper in you get. Um, this is a fucking fantastic film. And, and without scanning further up my list, probably the best Euro primer I've seen all year. Uh, I really, I wish more people had seen this film. It's got some fantastic performances, some great exchanges with... Uh, with uh, Giuliano Gemma and his wife. He's got a son, so that was some, a pull for me, obviously. Um, just, you know, uh, Damiani's such a cerebral director. He's like a dense, more paranoid European Steve Lumet. Um, high praise, but I think he certainly warrants it. He's a fucking fantastic director. So, yeah, uh, a man on his knees. There you go. Um, next up is uh, my number 19. And we're going to jump uh, decades, and we're going to jump countries, and we're going to get into Soy Cuba, which or or uh, AKA I am Cuba. Now this is a documentary or quasi, uh, sort of a quasi documentary, sort of travel log, if you will, um, that was done by uh, Soviet Russian filmmakers that were very, uh, very highly respected. What they what happened was. 
during the Cold War, these filmmakers uh, and these artists were sent to Cuba to determine how viable it was as a communist ally uh, for the Russians to kind of um, really put a lot of money and effort into advertising it as a hot spot for other communists and this is a, as, you know, a really great country, a tropical country uh, that happened to be communist. So it, it looks at, uh, certainly it's at a very much a communist bent, so there's some things that are very heavy-handed from a communist focal point or a communist viewpoint, and that's okay. I mean, you know, you're looking at it, you know, 30, 40, no, actually, sorry, about 50 years later. Um, now, it would be interesting as sort of a time capsule piece in and of itself, but what makes this thing stand out is some of the... Uh, some of the stuff with the farmers and the workers and stuff is really fantastic. And more than anything, it, it's just astoundingly shot. Like, there's a sequence where the camera goes up a wall of a hotel, out of a fucking, out of a, uh, out of a, a Cuban jazz club or a nightclub, up a hotel, into a swimming pool, out of a swimming pool, down the side of a hotel. It, it's easily one of the most technically astonishing sequences I've ever seen performed from a cinematography standpoint. Um, I know Soderbergh and Paul Thomas Anderson are huge fans of this film. They're big fans of that sequence. I think P.T. Anderson uh, lifted from it for the pool sequence in Boogie Nights, if I remember correctly. It's been a long time since I've seen that film. But it's a really interesting film and a really interesting look at, um, at ideology in a country that was still finding its way out of the jungle and into uh, modern times in a lot of ways. Um, so there you have it, point number 19, and with that said, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to check up here on some traffic. Alright, next up, number 18, and number 18 is a film that I'd also been meaning to see for a couple of years, um, because I'm a big fan of the lead, and the case, which is based on a true story, uh, I found very fascinating, uh, if, if, uh, heartbreaking. Uh, from the outset, and that, of course, is Bob Fosse's Star 80. Now, Star 80 is a film that focuses on the last, well, not even, well, the last days, but also the days leading up to the last days, um, of Dorothy Stratton. Uh, she was a Canadian from Vancouver, anywhere somewhere in British Columbia, who became a playmate, a Playboy playmate. She was about 20, 21 years old when she was viciously, I mean, brutally murdered by her husband at the time, her estranged husband, it should be said. Um, this film, from the outset, is tinged with a, a very, very strong sense of of melancholy, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't try to pull you that way, but you can't help but knowing how this thing ends feel terrible because everything that this this wide eyed, sweet, wholesome girl. Uh, everything that, that kind of goes right in her life, you know it's all going to fall to shit, and it's just a, a matter of the next 90 minutes going by before it really fucking goes south for this poor girl. Uh, you know, basically it's her rise to fame. She meets a real scumbag, a bit of an older guy, played by Eric Roberts, uh, and, and just a first-rate performance by him. And another guy that, the fun there, I think people are starting to recognize how great of an actor Eric Roberts was. You know, he's kind of fallen out of favor, much like Mickey Rourke had. But he's got a lot to offer, and I, you know, remember a few years back when you know, the wrestler was winning all the awards. Mickey Rourke's speech and a shout out to his friend Eric Roberts really got me choked up, um, you know, because of their bond and also just because it was true. Eric Roberts is a fantastic actor, and this film's no exception. Um, so basically, he plays her sleazy manager slash husband, 
they managed to infiltrate uh, Playboy. She becomes a centerfold. She's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And people around her are starting to indicate to her that maybe she needs to cut this guy off because he's got too much control over her life in every aspect. You know, the thing I find interesting too about this one is that Hugh Hefner and a lot of other real-life people gave the consent for their likenesses to be used in the film. I can't remember now off the top of my head, Chase Hefner, fuck it, someone big too, it's going to kill me to look back at this review or this little capsule and forget who it was. But um, for all these people to greenlight their likenesses to be used in the telling, uh, the tragic telling of Brooklyn Stratton's life, with one exception, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who's a filmmaker I quite like. Uh, I don't know if I'm really down with some of his... Uh, his proclivities when it comes to young women, but um, hey, you know that aside, it's not really the show for that right now. Um, anyway, Bogdanovich ended up with Dorothy Stratton, and you know he kind of politely encouraged her to, to cut this guy off once and for all. And I won't, I will spare you the gory, literally and figuratively details. But it's a film that just doesn't end well. It ends in heartbreak, and it's a tragic uh, story of a life cut short because of uh, a rather manipulative uh, uh, person in her life. So I can't recommend it enough. It's a really great film. I think most people would enjoy it. It's, you know, it's, it's mostly based in fact. Certainly there are some things that have been dramatized for the sake of, of drama. But uh, nonetheless, really great work. Uh, a dark film, certainly compared to some of Foster's other stuff, that maybe was, was dark in more of a winking way, but you know, a really good film. Uh, next up for me is my number 17, and that is uh, Wendell Clark. That's that's interesting. Uh, Wendell Clark's number 17. And those of you that are puckheads will know that he is Captain Canada in a lot of ways, especially relief man. He's my favorite hockey player ever, one of my favorite athletes. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I'll move on to Wendell Clark because then I can start ranting about Iserman and Messi and a few other guys. But, Anyway, uh, next up is a Kubrick film I've not seen. There were a couple big Kubrick films this year I made a point to see uh, that I had never seen. And one of them was the next one. One of our listeners was kind enough to give me his disc when he upgraded to the Criterion Blue. This came out, I think, mid-year. And that is, of course, uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, starring in uh, Kubrick's Clouds of Glory. Uh, you know, an early indication, certainly, that, that Kubrick, despite... This wasn't Kubrick in full-on Kubrick mode. Um, you started to see signs when he, you know, did The Killing, which is another fantastic film, uh, and films from The Killing onward, where, you know, the studio, and then you could sort of, every film after that, you could kind of see his separation from studio and see his, um, you know, a lot of his, his more Kubrickian sensibilities uh, and tone and and uh, timing really come out, but Thaws of uh, Glory is you know very much an anti-war film. Uh, it looks at some men that are falsely accused of, of uh, cowardice and of abandoning their posts. Um, it's from a friend, a French perspective, uh, World War II, um, and it really looks at, at the higher-up officers and sometimes, and in this case, very literally, a suicide mission that that some of these young men were put into and thrust into uh, with no regard for their lives because basically it, it's a war of attrition and, you know, what value is their lives or do their lives have? And um, it, it works very well. I mean, even to this day, it's a very moving film. Kirk Douglas puts in a wonderful performance, almost like a, like a, a sort of like a, a To Kill a Mockingbird, Gregory Peck-esque performance, you know, very noble, 
Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you check it out. Next up is a film very different from from Paths of Glory, uh, but equally as awesome. Uh, it is a uh, Patrick Donahue joint, and that is, of course, Parole Violators. So the film we also covered on the show, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, because I have said a lot of it on the show. We've talked about Labia Minora, we've talked about Labia Majora, we've talked about, um, oh, not Nicky Bird, what's his name? Ah... Uh, Goonie Bird, that's it, the Goonie Bird. We talked about the Goonie Bird, and we talked about how this film is, not to discredit it, but a brainless American version of like a police story type film. And I mean that in the, the nicest possible way, in that it's a fun, rompy, insanely stunted and choreographed action film. It is action film to me in its purest form, because it doesn't have any pretense about domestic, well, there's a whole clumsy uh, young girl on the flatlining sequence in the hospital, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, weigh itself down with a lot of heavy domestic stuff. It gets to the goods, it delivers the goods, has no pretense about it, and in case you haven't read our review, this to me is truly a Pantheon GGTMC film that needs to be mentioned alongside films like Stabilizer and Deadly Prey. It absolutely runs with those films. It's a tremendously entertaining piece of uh, action filmmaking that brings a smile to my face whenever I think about it. Um, next up for me is another documentary. It is Children Underground. And this is a film that I'd actually become aware of because of a family friend of ours. When we were down in Cuba for a wedding back in March, um, the brother of the bride and I got talking about film and, and art and stuff, and he'd asked me about a couple of documentaries, uh, one being this, uh, Children Underground, and another one being uh, a, a South Korean documentary about a South Korean who had been in a North Korean prison camp for a number of years, and sort of programmed in conditions. But anyway, um, I still haven't seen that one, sadly. Children Underground is a very, very, very hard watch. Uh, anyone that's got children, or anyone who, even if you don't have kids, man, it's gonna, gonna fucking pull your heartstrings if you stop and think about it and you don't try to be a hard man or, or a rude gal. Uh, it chronicles the day to day lives of a number of homeless children. Uh, the reason these children are homeless is because, as a result of, I wanna say, Ceausescu. The name during the golden age, quote unquote, I think the late 60s up until the early 80s, and they were under his rule that he coined the golden age, um, contraceptives were banned. So, as a result, you had a lot of unwanted pregnancies, and you had a lot of unwanted children being thrust into orphanages, thrust into the streets, thrust into churches. Um, just thrust into environments that they had no way to defend for themselves for. Um, it looks at these children, it looks at a specific group of children who are sort of banded together in this, uh, this subway station, and it doesn't sugarcoat things, it certainly doesn't go as dark as it could, thankfully, uh, into some of the sort of the sexual abuse that maybe these children have to endure, but um, you do see uh, some tragic drug abuse, you see a lot of these girls and boys as young as, you know, five, six, seven years old, right up to maybe 15, 16, uh, huffing glue and fucking paint, and you see them wandering around glassy-eyed with silver paint around them, and, and just 
oh, it, it, some of these shows are so broken beyond, you know, almost beyond repair because of what they've endured at the point when they've been hard. When you, you know, when you're that young, you that's when you're really hardwired for the rest of your life. Your emotional, mental makeup, uh, a lot of your the stuff that that factors into how you respond and react to things in life comes from those first few years and um, it looks at this looks at these kids and, and some of them are, you know, one of them or two of them are real fighters and real survivors that are able to rise above uh, terrible, terrible circumstances and do some things some of the kids get swallowed up by this this utterly tragic uh, circumstance that they've been thrust into I mean, it, it really it, it really made me cry I mean, it made me cry very hard because, you know, being the father of two young boys, I can't imagine, you know, any child being thrust into a situation like that. You know, they, you know, that's the thing with children. Children never ask to be brought into this world, so, you know, you better be careful what you're doing. So, anyway, uh, it's a fantastic documentary um, that looks at a very marginalized group of, of youngsters. Next up, another documentary, uh, one that I didn't have overly high hopes for, but I heard some good things about. And thankfully, I've turned Zom into its number one fan. That is, I like killing flies. Now, this, if I know correctly, is the actual factual. Um, oh, this recording's getting fucking long. Actual factual um, character or person that the Soup Nazis based on. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but it's a man. They had a family-run uh, restaurant, sort of a real greasy spoon, in New York City, and Shopson was his name. And it, it just it chronicles their family and their day to day, and his um, uh, you know stovetop philosophical ramblings, and a lot of the stuff he says is kind of kind of accurate and spot on about the world uh, in a small sense and in a large sense, and uh, it's you know it's with them transitioning from one place, uh, one building to another building, which you know had been 30, 40 years, whatever it had been since they'd had to move. So it looks at that, it looks at the relationship with the, the, the children who all take part in the restaurant, it looks at his relationship with his customers, the, the rigid rules they have that you can't come in more than four people or you'll get fucking kicked out. It just all sorts of really quirky things, but also some heartfelt moments. And I think it, it does what a lot of documentaries, good documentaries do, and that's uh, have a strong sense of human interest. So my number 14 is I Like Killing Flies. And with that, I'm going to take a quick break. And uh, just pause this thing. Okay, I gotta move this along. Uh, number 13 is one that I saw recently on the show. This is actually the most recent one, uh, so I'm not gonna really talk about it too much. The Ninth Configuration, William Peter Blatty's The Ninth Configuration. Um, tremendous piece of film. Certainly not the most accessible of films, but the kind of film that will reward multiple viewings. Um, it's a fantastic film, I can't recommend it highly enough come for the astoundingly good performances and musings on life, uh, stay for the eyelinered, uh, ascot-wearing, sleeveless, denim-vested Steve Sandor doing the splits whilst forcibly pouring a beer into Stacey Keats' mouth. So number, that's my lucky number 13. Number 12, My Flesh and Blood, another documentary, another documentary about children. Uh, this is one I watched on Netflix Instant, and again, um, I think I, I read the synopsis and I thought, holy fuck, I gotta see this. Uh, it's about a woman, uh, a single woman, who uh, raised, I think, and I, the number, my numbers aren't gonna be right, but I think 12 or 14, you know, special needs 
children that no one else wanted to care for. At the time, I thought, man, I got two kids, you know, touch wood, two healthy young boys, and I go fucking crazy some days. Like, I, I don't know how, I, I just, like, I feel like my brain's melting. Like, I, I don't even know how it's done, you know? And here's this woman, has all these kids with various uh, severe needs, uh, you know, right across the board from mental challenges to physical challenges to diseases uh, that, are, that are uncurable, everything in between. So, uh, really what this is, is it, it allows you an insight into their lives, their day-to-day lives. Uh, it allows you to kind of examine what, what the term family means, and you get a chance to see this woman, as well as the children in her life, and how their lives are impacted by their siblings, as well as how their lives are impacted by the people around them. In fact, there's even a pair of Siamese twins, uh, two young girls who get along quite well, and one of them actually has a boyfriend. Um, just a fantastic documentary, a great, again, a great human piece. It is heartbreaking. Uh, some of the stuff that happens with the kids is just, just going to crush your fucking soul. Um, some of the stuff that happens with the kids as far as their current mother, as I said, you know, for lack of a better description, um, allows them to have relationships with uh, their, their blood, their, their flesh and blood, their real flesh and blood parents, and how that doesn't really work out for them as they would see fit. So, you know, it's a sad film, but it's ultimately uplifting, I think, when you look at what this woman was able to do and how these children bonded together. And I think there was an episode of, uh, what's that show done, uh, that guy Ty, Dr. Holmes, what's it called? Uh, I don't know, the one where they build homes and everyone cries, and it's actually pretty awesome, because people that need a fucking house uh, get one that's souped up for free. So, I can't remember the name of that show. You all know it. Our wives all watch it. Um, but anyway, my flesh and blood, fantastic documentary. Number 11, Carnal Knowledge. Uh, this is a film that, again, I've been mentioning for a long time, but what finally put it over the top for me was uh, Danny Perry, guy from the film fanatic, really trumpeting his praises. And, you know, I've been in a, in every year I've been trying to see two or three Nicholsons I hadn't seen getting up to that point. Because as I've recently said, I think the more I think about it, Jack Nicholson might be my favorite actor of all time. Um, his work through the late 60s into the mid-80s, I just adore. I mean, everything from the King of Marvin Gardens to the Pledge. I mean, right to the 90s. What am I saying? The Pledge to the the Border, which wasn't a great film, but he was great. And it is a conflicted man. But uh, Colonel Knowledge is about two young men, Art Garfunkel, who it should be said puts in a fucking amazing performance as uh, Jack's best friend. They're two young guys. I think they're college freshmen or sophomores, maybe. Uh, it's about them chasing pussy. And the realization that uh, you know that comes with sexual experience and life experience, and where they end up at the end, and there's just a wonderful slideshow at the end chronicling the women that Jack Nicholson has been with and, and what they've meant to him. Sometimes uh, he's truthful about what they've meant to him, and other times, subconsciously or consciously, he's not truthful about what they've meant to him. So, really, a great, a great fucking film. Uh, like I said, our Garfield was fantastic. It looks at. Uh, you know, during the sexual revolution of the 60s, the liberation of women. Uh, really a great film, man. I, you know, I, I, I can't say enough good things about it for those of you that haven't seen it. Um, then we're getting into the nitty-gritty here. We're getting into the top ten. Uh, number ten for me is the second of two Bob Fosse films on my list. Uh, this one was another one that I really felt embarrassed about not having seen as I consider myself to be a cinephile. Uh, despite knowing, you know, you can't see it all. 
that is, of course, his quasi-autobiographical uh, uh, film, All That Jazz. All That Jazz is a musical of sorts. It's sort of like uh, a dance, a musical dance, pill-popping, cynical version of Fellini's Eight and a Half. Um, it did eerily foretell uh, Bob Fosse's own demise, and whether that was a self-fulfilling prophecy or not, I guess is up for debate. But um, you know, Roy Scheider, one of our legendary and undersung tough guy character actors, and should be said leading man actors, it should you know rightfully um, stars in this as the the Bob Fosse character. Of course, names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, and it looks at his life and how he views his life, and he's certainly got his shortcomings. Neglects his daughter more than he could and should, and not more than he could, more than he should, I should say. Uh, and looks at you know uh, his, his fear of death and fear of failure, and his pushing his art uh, as far as he could, and what piece of himself he gave up for that art. Really a great film. Um, I'm not a musical guy. Full disclosure, there's maybe a handful of musicals I can say I really love. Most of them to be less conventional. Um, stuff like Canada Paradise, Rocky Horror. Uh, this, you know, there's a few, but there's not a whole lot. I'm not a big musical guy, but this is one I would highly implore all of you to check out if you get a chance. Uh, just a really, really good fucking film. Uh, next up for me is was one of the first films I actually watched in in 2011. It was in the early days of me having Netflix. In fact, it might have been the second or third film I watched on Netflix. And it was probably the film I unleashed on my wife that she hated the most all year. That is, of course, of course. Uh, you'll see why I stumbled out when I let you know the name, uh, Cleana Scotty, which, uh, how, did, how, did you, how does one describe Cleana Scotty? How does one pronounce Cleana Scotty? How does one spell Cleana Scotty? Um, Cleana Scotty, now that I've set the, the record for most uh, times having said the word Kleana Scotty and within a two minute period um, really is a snapshot at, at the enormity of life uh, everything from from architecture to uh, to human nature and everything in between it's a pretty profound chronicle, I don't want to even say a documentary I guess that's what it would fall into but it's almost like this, this observation or this chronicling of of life on Earth, and not just humanity, but everything that life on Earth encompasses and, and that Earth encompasses. Um, certainly an experimental film. There's no narrative. It's, it's just music and, and sound, which I guess when you strip away words, it's, you know, film at its purest sense for some. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. I know the follow-ups weren't anywhere near as good. I know uh, there's a comparable film, I want to say called Baraka, that I've heard is very good. Um, and I will check out at some point. Hopefully it'll be on my 2012 so, uh, that's that. Uh, that's my number nine. I'm going to take a little break here as I'm going to a stoplight. I'm in, in my house. We're back. Now. Number eight is The Return. Uh, this is a film that barely made the cut. Uh, I haven't even said what sort of my ground rules were for this, but it was something I'd seen for the first time in 2011. They had to be five years old or, or older. Um, that unfairly omitted some films. Um, from the list, but, you know, that's to say, you know, these are the breaks. So, uh, The Return is a film 
that I hope more people see. It was kind of a quieter Russian art house film from the early 2000s. Uh, it is a it is just a wonderful, uh, wonderfully poetic uh, force of nature film that, uh, very simply at its core, what it does is it looks at um, uh, two sets of brothers, or not two sets of brothers, a set of brothers, two brothers. Uh, and their father, after I think seven or ten years of him being away, he returns unannounced and unexplained and wants to take them on a trip into the harsh, unforgiving Russian wilderness. Um, there's a sense of foreboding with the film. It's not certainly not a horror film, thanks to my but there's a sense of, of foreboding, there's a sense of unease, there's an anxiety. You get into these these boys' heads. Uh, one boy is certainly doing everything to curry favor with his father. The other one is very much bitter about, it has more questions, the older one certainly has more questions, he's more bitter about the father's return, and it's, you know, along the lines of, well, hang on, you can't just show up here again, and everything's all right, um, and it looks at sort of the battle of wills between the older brother and the younger brother, and the older brother and the father, and the father and the younger brother, um, it's, it's, the film, I don't want to spoil the film for you, but the ending is one of the most tragically ironic uh, endings to echo or mirror real-life events. And I don't want to say much more than that, but uh, it is a wonderfully piece of, wonderfully uh, fantastic piece of filmmaking. Um, I, it's on Netflix here in Canada. I'm sure it's on Netflix in the States. Um, and that is my number eight, The Return. Number seven is another documentary, another Netflix watch, if you will, and it is uh, Winter Soldier. Um, Winter Soldier was one I'd heard good things about. It was a fact, see, actually, it was a recommend from Netflix. So, my previous two were as well The Return and Kiana Scott, you both were. So, I guess Netflix's algorithm or their, their fucking tubes and mice or whatever the fuck it is worked well for me in terms of referring uh, films to me. So, Winter Soldier is a documentary. Um, it's about a, a rather underpublicized uh, press conference that a number of Vietnam vets had had uh, in, I believe, Detroit or in and around Michigan or Ohio uh, to speak out uh, against the Vietnam War and to uh, correct a lot of the falsehoods that were be being flagrant, flagrantly spread by um, the American government at the time uh, about the war effort and the morale and about the nobility of war. Um, a lot of these men, you know, 19 to 25, 30 years old, they recount things that, you know, I've never even seen in Vietnam films. I've never seen more films. Um, to be a grown man now, to have a family, and I always harken back to that, and I know that, but I feel like it really enables me to appreciate um, the sanctity of human life. Uh, to, to know that these young men had to endure and see things and were recounting these things uh, for the betterment of, of everyone, uh, it really was moving. And again, it brought tears to my eyes, thinking, what if that was me? How would that have changed my life? How would that have changed my perspective? How scarred would I have been for life? Um, what if that was my son? You know, uh, what if that was my friend, my brother? You know, these are all things that I think people don't realize until it's too late, until their family member gets lost or maimed in war. And a lot of times we look at the, the physical disability, and not, not enough talking about that, but 
Never mind the, the unspeakable emotional and mental scars that these young men and women uh, endured, uh, that endure on a daily basis when dealing with war. So uh, I know this was uh, a lot of these these men were you know the the, the, the who was it? I can't remember what organization it was I want to say it was the FBI I could be wrong a few organizations were trying everything they could to discredit these men um, basically you know saying that some of them they questioned the validity of their their claims and so on and so forth but I, I highly recommend this documentary I think it's 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 just a first-rate uh, documentary. Next up, before we get into my top five, is um, also one film that was picked from uh, one of our listeners. It's a film that i got to give it up to Tyler, Tyler Durden again. Tyler Cheesehead, both of the films he picked for Program for Japan were in my top 23 of the year that I've seen for the first time. So, well done, my good man. Um, Seven Beauties, or Pascolino Sette Balletze, is... Stars Giancarlo Giannini, who, as I've said before, I named one of the main reasons I named my my, young, my youngest son's middle name Giancarlo was after Giancarlo Giannini. And after seeing his performance, uh, it further solidified my love of him. Um, I won't say too much about this film, but again, it's a film that takes place in fascist Italy. Um, it's not starring a white hat, noble-intentioned man. It's about a man who is certainly insistent on survival and some of the things he, he does, it's very easy for us to get up in the white, the ivory tower and say, why would you do that? You're a fucking rat and you did this and you did that. But if we put ourselves in his shoes, I think, and we honestly look in the mirror this and some decisions he makes, maybe not all, but some decisions he makes, you'd have to reconcile with yourself and, and really be truthful with yourself that a lot of people would probably make if they wanted to survive. Um, just an astounding film, man. Lena Vertmuller, I love this film. I really, really love this film, and I can't say enough good things about it. I can't say enough good things about John Giannini's performance, about the heartbreaking scene when, out of desperation and survival in, a, in an utterly weakened and starved state, he tries to seduce the most bulldike, uh, cold uh, of, of German, uh, of Nazi women, uh, in a feeble, heartbreaking attempt. That really, you know, his, his masculinity, his identity, his his sense of national, everything's been stripped away from him in every sense in this one scene. It's just a wonderful film that I'm going to buy when I get some money, when I recover from the money apocalypse that was Christmas. So that is uh, number six. I'm going to take a short break because I'm sitting in my driveway like an asshole. I want to get in my house. I can put on my yellow robe, pour myself a glass of J&B, and I can go over my top five with you guys. So I will be right back in just a moment. Okay, so I'm not exactly in my yellow robe and nothing else with a glass of JMB in hand. Instead, what I'm doing is fixing a toilet at my house. Yes, I know, I know. The life of a podcaster is fairly glamorous. Certainly romantic and action-packed, such is my life. Um, in saying that, uh, I, for the sake of in the interest, staying down on time, we do both. So, number five is a film that is what was is directed by Powell Pressburger, uh, Emmerich Powell, Michael Powell, Emmerich Pressburger. 
Um, certainly a much-loved combination in a lot of circles, specifically in a more art house circle. Um, so from a moral safe in the late 40s, also on Netflix in Canada. Uh, very curious to see the Blu-ray looks. It's one of the more beautiful films I've ever had the pleasure of seeing, uh, and that is The Red Shoes. Story of a rather single-minded uh, ballerina who has to choose between love uh, and her career, uh, and the man who drives her to dizzying heights professionally and certainly tumult emotionally. Um, it's you know films of that era. Um, you know, really, I certainly appreciate when they're able to do things from a technical standpoint that I really admire. And there's, there's several things about this film. The thing I take away most from this film is, you know, the production design, costumes, everything of the area, everything of the time was just immaculate. Uh, it's a beautiful film to look at. It's easy to look at this film and, and really admire it um, for everything that it, it gives the eye. But further to that, there's something universal and timeless about the story. Uh, in the film as well. So I think it's, and the ending is just a heartbreaking ending. Uh, I don't want to reveal too much for those of you who haven't seen it, but if you're put off and you're thinking, oh, fuck, man, a you know, late 40s or whatever it was, film about ballet just doesn't tickle my sphincter, um, I would say, you know, you're wrong. It probably will tickle your sphincter and may give you a little dusty in the eye. So, uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. I think it's a very worthwhile film. Many serious cinephiles uh, must-see list. So I had meant to see forever. I'm probably going to able to knock it off my list. Next is a film that doesn't have number one, number four film. It's a film that um, <clears throat> certainly may have less acclaim than most of the films on my list. But I think it's more because of its anonymity and its lack of quality. Um, it's a film that I first became aware of during the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, the film is Invasion. This is an Argentinian film. It's um, much like, uh, from further down my list, looks at fascism and how it rears its head in society. And the downfall of that um, despite the noble efforts of good, honest people to destroy it. Um, this film was quite a revelation for me. It's very hard to find. I can tell you this. I don't usually promote this sort of thing, but uh, this film is fully available, I believe, uh, online on YouTube with subs. I think that's how Zom saw it. So I recommended it to Zom. And we had the pleasure of seeing it uh, in all its subtitled Argentinian Glory. I really love this film. It's probably the film I love the second or third most this year. You know, this list is really a combination for me of admire, respect, love. And this film is probably the second most second most loved film on my list. I'm going to film a little bit further on my list. Uh, but moving on to number three is a film from Germany and a film that in a lot of ways defines a lot of um, standard conventional thinking about Germanic film, and that's Wim Wenders and his film Wings of Desire. So I've been meaning to see forever, and I just, I never got around to it. 
never got around to it until finally I did get around to it. And um, I'm happy I did, certainly. It's um, one of the best films I had the pleasure of seeing later, clearly, in the fact that it's as evidenced by the fact that it's my number three film. Um, it, you know, it's a film that I found really stuck. I saw this as a, an unintentional. Uh, an unintentional double bill with um, with beautiful the very um, film. Now that film, uh, that film certainly is a little more morose than this. This film uh, looks at an angel who observes human life uh, in Berlin, I believe, and. Um, in doing so, he falls in love. He wants to become human. He's going to give up his eternal life for the chance at love. The most revered of human emotions. Um, it spoke to me in a lot of ways. Um, I'm an angel who came down here looking for love. But it's uh, really a wonderful film that just looks at the beauty of life and, and all that... Um, we really can appreciate everything from the laughter of a child um, to the lover's quarrels, just to really appreciate everything around us in, our, in this earth and how uh, it's heavenly beauty, uh, as it were, no pun intended. Um, I do have to say that I think some of the stuff, some of the musical stuff, I think it was just a cave now, I can't remember, did feel a bit dated and out of place for a film that otherwise felt very timeless. That was probably one gripe I had, and I'm going to catch some shit for that, because I know some of our listeners are big Nick Cave, Nick Cave fans, and this isn't a criticism of Mr. Cave or his work. He's a fine musician and a fine artist, as it were, uh, and, you know, to use an all-encompassing term, but I do feel that that stuff took away a little bit from the film. Um, on the whole, the Brunigan gives one of my favorite performances of the year. It's a, a naturally a warm performance. Um, this is the second Vendors I've had the pleasure of seeing him in after uh, an American friend a few years, years ago. Years ago. Um, so yeah, I uh, highly recommend this film. Its reputation precedes it for a very good reason, certainly. So yeah, check it out. Um, number two on my list is Z. Z, 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 Z. Uh, this film, without question, is my favorite film I've seen all year, from anywhere, film festivals. Um, it's probably the film, it didn't move me the most, it maybe, you know, it didn't move me in the same way Wings of Desire moved me, or in the way that, hang on, I got these fucking bolts in. Um, the way a lot, of, a lot of other films moved me, um, such as a few of the films on my 2011 list. But there's something about this film that I simply adored, and I, I just I could not stop thinking about it. Um, and you know, it looks it's very much in a politically charged time. It's a politically charged film. If you look at the history of this film, uh, I think it was a Lambrakis. The Lambrakis was the choreographer, the the composer, was ushering out or just sneaking out his uh, the music he was working on to Costas Gavras in the middle of the night in a rather right-wing uh, political environment in Greece at the time. Very much a film that they critiqued the fascist states that were prevalent in Europe still um, in the 60s. 
uh, what it looks at is it looks at the assassination of a rather liberal uh, political candidate and uh, the people that try, try to find truth at any cost. Um, it's got an absolutely pulsating, uh, rather rather Greek sounding at times, pulsating score that would be right at home in a Euro crime film. In fact, I guess in some ways this is a politically minded Euro crime film. Um, it's got some astonishing stuff. Uh, the Greek actress, I want to Papa Dimitri, I can't remember her name now. Fuck, here I am working on a toilet trying to get this shit fixed and, and trying to recall actors' names. Um, remember her name. She barely has any lines, but what she's able to evoke and convey with her eyes is comparable to what Vanetta McGee did in The Great Silence. Uh, less is more. Irene Papa, maybe that's it. Um, oh, just a brilliant, heartbreaking performance. Again, Trignol, Jean, uh, Jean-Louis, Trignol comes back and uh, gives a knockout performance in this as a uh, man crusading for truth at any cost. Um, the film does some things and you applaud it and then I don't want to spoil the very ending of the film but it's certainly in spirit with the message that Costas Gavis was trying to convey um, from the opening sequence of the film about uh, the tyranny of, of evil of corruption in our politics and the sometimes uh, fruitless endeavor to find truth and humanity amidst it all so that was my favorite film of the year that I've seen for the first time. I can't recommend it enough. I went out and bought the Blu-ray. It's just an astounding piece of work uh, on every level. I know the people that I've since referred it to, i.e. Blake, uh, over at the boards, can, can vote for it. Um, my number one film, though, was not Z. Uh, the number one film I saw this year was a film that maybe two three years ago I had the pleasure of when the Tiff Bell Lightbox opened up, uh, they had a list of the 100 greatest films of all time. But they had deemed, they had, uh, they had um, polled film programmers, film critics, and laymen such as myself, and people that could fill up ballots. And through that, they um, made a composite list of the 100 greatest films of all time. Number one on that list was a film I had been familiar with, but I had not seen, and I made it a point to see it the first chance I had. And that film is um, Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. This film to me transcends, and this is going to sound trite and fucking cliche, arty farty, but it really transcends the medium of film. It says so much, and it gets so much mileage out of the performance uh, that the lead actress gave, who I think was a non-actor. I don't think she worked ever again, but her legacy and her mark on film um, was, she left an indelible stamp on it. Uh, it certainly, again, I guess, deals with a lot of themes that uh, I've come to gravitate. I've come to realize that it's what I gravitate towards, and that's uh, the corruption and the abuse of power. And those in the line of fire who uh, learn to take a stand for truth um, amidst all that. So there you have it. Um, from number thirty to number one. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode where I've been driving and fixing toilets. I'm off to watch a few movies, planning for 2011. We will see you next week. Sammy, myself, maybe the uncool cat, 
covering his films for Program from Japan. On the night, I will say adios. Okay, so it's, I guess, about 14 or 15 hours since I banged out my top 30 uh, films that I'd seen for the first time in 2011 list. Uh, last one, I was making pizza, and I it occurred to me that I'd left a very important film off my list. Uh, now, if this was a film that, you know, almost maybe near the bottom end of my list in the late 20s or 30, I probably wouldn't have recorded a little postscript uh, to all of this. But, you know, I think one of the main reasons Rick and I uh, wanted to do our show was to push the films we love on to people that maybe hadn't seen them. Um, so that's why I'm recording this little blurb about a film that probably would have been my third I probably would have been, in, yeah, probably in the three spot for me. Um, it was a film that had showed up on a lot of uh, a lot of critics' best of the decade list. Um, you know, back after 2010 had ended and, and so forth. And I, it was one I, quite honestly, at the time, I really had no familiarity with the director uh, or his work. I, you know, I maybe heard his name. That was it. I couldn't have told you anything he'd done. So it really kind of uh, put my radar up. And uh, I went through the process of, of tracking down uh, this film. And that film is Carlos Brigadis's uh, Silent Light. Uh, Silent Light focuses, it, it's, it's very Malikian in tone, in that it, and I mentioned this on the show a few weeks ago, in that it um, has a reverence for, for nature, for uh, sort of a poetry about, about nature and. and uh, and almost a holy you know, reverence for for nature, uh, for the world around us, and for the simple things in life. Um, what it focuses on is a group of Mennonites, or, or some sort of sect of Mennonites, uh, that um, are, are situated in Mexico. They've been there for a few generations, I believe. Um, so I think they're, they're German, Germanic in origin, I believe, that settled in Mexico, you know, a couple hundred years ago, or something like that. My history may be off. It's, it's uh, 7 in the morning right now, so I'm maybe not as sharp as I could be. But anyway, um, it focuses on the moral quandary. It really focuses on a family, and in that family, it focuses on the moral quandary um, that the patriarch or the father of the house um, endures a crisis of, of um, you know what he's going to do at a, at a moment of moral weakness and it's 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 a pretty astounding film it's, it's beautiful to look at I, I think one of the amazing things is she used I think all non-actors for the film she's going to use real Mennonites um, I think the opening and closing sequences when the star when the sky lights up with stars is just pretty breathtaking, pretty entrancing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're into Malik or you're into films like that, uh, this would be one you should definitely check out. It's certainly not a Neville and Taylor film, um, so if you're a little bit drowsy, maybe it's not the one for you. But it's a film that that asks questions of our universe and of a higher power and of mankind and doesn't always give you the answers. It kind of forces you to find the answers yourself and what you feel sort of feel the feel the answers are. Um, so yeah, Carlos Riedis's Silent Light with 
probably fall into my three uh, three spots. Films I've seen for the first time in 2011. So that's it. I am now once and truly done. Hope you all enjoyed this list as much as I enjoyed making it while driving and fixing toilets and making pizzas. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.